0: Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we pick 6 different movies that fall under one common theme. We give you a little insight behind how, when, where, and why each movie was made. And on top of that, at no extra charge to you, loyal listener, you get a full review of the movie from me, Beau Ransdell, and my co-host, Chad Cooper. We have made it to Episode 5 of Season 4, The War on Christmas movies this time around we're taking a look at 1990s home alone it is by far the best movie we are going to talk about this season but i don't want to spoil anything chad's got a great introduction all cooked up for you so away we go
1: christmas is a time to spend with friends and family in an effort to pretend that we all like one another if at least for a short while But there's one family member we all can agree on is universally loved and that of course is uncle buck uncle buck is a 1989 film starring john candy as well uncle buck it was the first movie of a multi-picture deal that writer and director john hughes struck with universal studios after hughes had a string of successful films including 16 candles and the breakfast club and pretty in pink John Candy had also previously worked with John Hughes on the comedies Planes, Trains and Automobiles and The Great Outdoors. Candy even had a small part as a security guard in National Lampoon's Vacation, which Hughes wrote. Now in the film, the title character, Uncle Buck, He comes to stay with his two nieces and nephew while their parents attend to a medical emergency regarding their grandfather on their mother's side. Shenanigans, misunderstandings, and mayhem all ensue. Uncle Buck makes Paul Bunyan-sized pancakes and kidnaps a handsy boyfriend named Bug. Ultimately, Uncle Buck wins over his older brooding teenage niece, Tia, and he's beloved by the younger siblings, Maisie and her brother Miles. Uncle Buck proved to be a financial success, leading to future Projects between writer, director Hughes, and John Candy, including cameos and multiple other films and even Candy taking a turn as a romantic lead in the Hughes-produced comedy Only the Lonely, a film that was written and directed by Chris Columbus, but we'll get back to him a little bit later. Uncle Buck gave rise to a TV spinoff in 1990 starring Kevin Meany, and then ABC did the same thing in 2016 with Mike Epps in the title role. Neither show made it past its first season. And besides these two short-lived television sitcom adaptations, Uncle Buck helped to give rise to some notable acting careers, The older, moody teenage sister, Tia, was played by Jean Louisa Kelly. Uncle Buck was her first feature film, which led to roles in Mr. Holland's Opus and an impressive string of work in multiple TV series, including the sitcom Yes, Dear and Mad About You, among many others. Gabby Hoffman, who played the younger female sibling Maisie, appeared in both Uncle Buck and the ghost-riddled baseball classic Field of Dreams, which were both released in the same year. Hoffman went on to appear in the Tom Hanks Meg Ryan romantic comedy Sleepless in Seattle, and she was in the coming-of-age movie Now and Then, and most recently you can see her in Amazon's Transparent. But there was one performance in Uncle Buck that somehow managed to outshine even the larger-than-life presence of John Candy in every scene that they shared. That performance was of the younger brother Miles, played by Macaulay Culkin. Uncle Buck was the third feature film for Culkin, who was nine years old in 1989, the year that Uncle Buck was not only shot, but also released in theaters and released on home video. 89 was the year of Buck. But during this year, little did Macaulay Culkin or anyone else at the time know that just one short year later, his life would change forever when he would star in what would become the highest grossing comedy of all time, Home Alone. In late 1989, John Hughes began toying with the idea of a movie based on his own anxieties that arose from the challenge of his own family traveling to Europe. After he got back home, Hughes revisited the idea and he introduced a twist where one of the kids in the family was accidentally left behind. Hughes began writing and he finished the first draft in nine days. Once the script was revised and ready for production, Hughes went looking for a director. Chris Columbus. I told you we'd get back to him. He had scored some real success as a writer, cranking out screenplays for The Goonies, Young Sherlock Holmes, and another arguable Christmas classic, Gremlins. Columbus successfully took the director's chair in the 1987 family comedy, Adventures in Babysitting, but he stumbled a bit with the release of his next outing, the Elvis kidnapping caper, Heartbreak Hotel, which Columbus wrote and directed. In a 2015 Chicago Magazine retrospective on Home Alone, Columbus said of that experience, In 1989, I directed Heartbreak Hotel, and it was a disaster. It opened on a Friday, and by Wednesday, it was only playing at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Around that time, John Hughes sent me a script for Christmas Vacation. I love Christmas, so to do a Christmas comedy had been a dream. I went out to dinner with Chevy Chase, and to be completely honest, Chevy treated me like dirt. But I stuck it out and even went so far as to shoot second unit. Some of my shots of downtown Chicago are still in the movie then i had another meeting with chevy and it got worse i called john and said there's no way i can do this movie i know i need to work but i can't do it with this guy john was very understanding about two weeks later i got two scripts at my in-laws house one was home alone with a note from john asking if i wanted to direct i thought wow this guy is really supporting me when no one else in hollywood was going to john was my savior John Hughes went on to suggest to Chris Columbus that Macaulay Culkin be cast in the lead as Kevin McAllister. Hughes's recommendation was based on his experience working with the young actor on Uncle Buck. See, it's all coming together now. Columbus said in the same Chicago magazine retrospective, I think John knew all along that he wanted Macaulay in the movie. I thought he was great in Uncle Buck, but I owed it to myself as a director to see other child actors. John said, "Okay, take your time, do what you need. Columbus went on to say, I ended up seeing 200 other kids, looked over hundreds of videotapes, then Macaulay read, and you immediately knew this was the kid. I knew subconsciously that John knew that was going to happen, but it was really sweet of him to give me that sort of freedom. Look at that. Just when you thought you couldn't like John Hughes anymore, he surprises you yet again with Macaulay Calkins selected for the movie's pint-sized protagonist, Kevin. Next came the casting of the other two primary leads, Harry and Marv, the Wet Bandits. For the role of Harry, the brains of the outfit, numerous actors were considered, including Robert De Niro, Rowan Atkinson, Bob Hoskins, Danny DeVito, Christopher Lloyd, Dudley Moore, Phil Collins, and even John Lovitz. In the end, it was Joe Pesci who landed the role, thanks in part to his performance in Raging Bull, in that film, Pesci showed off his comedic abilities as Joey Lamotta, a character that really uses his wits to manage his temperamental brother. Daniel Stern was ultimately cast to play the other inept burglar Marv. Stern had an impressive acting career at this point, including roles in Barry Levinson's Diner, Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters, and Cheech Marin's Born in East L.A. Plus, at the time, Stern was providing the voice narration as the never-seen, overly-reflective, adult-sized Kevin Arnold in ABC's coming-of-age series, The Wonder Years. When it came to landing the part of Marv in Home Alone, Stern knew this was an opportunity to do something really different. Stern said, The script struck a chord in me. I hadn't gotten a chance to express that kind of physical comedy since I was a kid. I thought... I can hit a fucking home run with this. I went to audition for Chris. I wanted it so bad. When I left, I thought I could do that better. It was the only time in my life I called and said, can I come back? Chris told me later that he was already gonna cast me, but he saw me again. SCTV comedy veteran Catherine O'Hara was cast to play Kevin's mom. John Hurd came in to play Kevin's dad, marking the second time that he and Daniel Stern appeared in the same feature film. The first time, of course, being the sewer-dwelling zombie classic, Chud. At its core, Home Alone is a movie about learning the value of family during Christmas. But wrapped around that core is a barrage of wince-inducing physical stunts, as our pint-sized protagonist, Kevin, is pitted against our profoundly pitiful pair of plunderers, Harry and Marv. To accomplish these feats of daring do, enter former professional bull rider, Troy Brown, and veteran stuntman, Leon Delaney. Brown was brought in to take the abuse doled out on Pesci's character, Harry. Initially, there was concern that Brown was too tall and heavy to double for Pesci. And so stunt coordinator Freddie Heiss had the costume department make Brown's coat a little bit longer to allow him to bend his knees to look shorter. But after Brown completed a few falls, Director Columbus said, Okay, Troy, you can stand up now, being fully aware of the ruse at hand. Leon Delaney stepped in as Daniel Stern's stunt double. Delaney performed stunt work on movies such as Commando, Predator, and Roadhouse, and also it turned out that he bore a striking resemblance to Daniel Stern himself. Stern was very generous in his praise of Delaney's stunt work in the film, saying, I get to the icy steps and I pretend to slip, and Leon comes in and does it. We cut and move on to the next shot. And I'm like, fuck, dude, you did that four times. It wasn't funny to watch well, it was sort of funny. I'd walk away with a feeling of absolute gratefulness and awe, the stuntmen were the unsung heroes of the show. Whenever people tell me moments they like, I say, oh, that was Leon. Once the filmmakers took their core emotional family values at Christmas package and wrapped it up in a flurry of comedic stunt work, all that was needed was a final flourish to bring it together. And that big, beautiful bow was a musical score from legendary composer John Williams. John Williams is one of, if not the most legendary motion picture composer of all time. By the end of the 1980s, Williams scored the music for the original three Star Wars movies, Jaws, Close Encounters, Richard Donner's Superman, all three Indiana Jones movies, E.T. He's kind of a big deal at this point in the history of things. Columbus said of Williams' contribution to the movie, we didn't expect to get him. Even the teaser poster had Bruce Botton's name on it who scored young Sherlock Holmes, which I wrote in 1984. Someone at my agency got a finished print to John Williams. He looked at the film and fell in love with it. John called me and said he'd love to do the score. I was shooting Only the Lonely in Chicago, so I couldn't go to the scoring. We got cassette tapes mailed to us. I remember breaking for lunch and sitting and eating lunch with the crew and playing the Home Alone score for the first time on a boombox. It was one of the great moments of my life. I thought this score is going to be in our film. It was fantastic. It elevated everything. Home Alone opened the week before Thanksgiving on November 16th, 1990 in 1202 theaters going head-to-head against the Sylvester Stallone powerhouse Rocky V, which opened in 2053 theaters. Despite appearing in almost half as many theaters as Rocky V, Home Alone took the number one box office spot where it remained for 12, yes, 12 weeks straight. Home Alone was the number one movie in theaters for three months in a row. Home Alone bested every other movie that opened that holiday season, including Dances with Wolves, Stephen King's Misery, Edward Scissorhands, Kindergarten Cop, and even The Godfather Part 3. On top of all that, Home Alone remained in the box office top ten through the end of April 1991. Home Alone cost $18 million to produce and brought in over $476 million at the box office. Reviews of the movie were mixed, but most notably, critics cited, you know what, who cares what the critics had to say. This movie made $476 million. Home Alone went on to generate a sequel starring all of the original cast because the first one made $476 million. The sequel didn't capture lightning in a bottle the way it's predecessor did, but it did generate a lot of thunder and made it rain at the box office with a haul of $358 million off of a budget of only $20 million. The 1995 movie Bushwhack starring Daniel Stern was reportedly going to be a Home Alone spinoff in which Marv was to be on the straight and narrow path only to get set up for a crime he didn't commit, but that idea was scrapped and the movie came out with a different twist. The Home Alone franchise continued without Macaulay Calkin who arguably aged out of the role by the time the third Home Alone was produced. This movie didn't have Pesci or Stern, it's not set at Christmas, and really the only thing that was carried over from the first two films was writer John Hughes and the premise. Home Alone 3 was a theatrical reboot of sorts with a new kid at home sick with chickenpox, fending off four bad guys who were trying to get a computer chip hidden in a toy car. The movie didn't perform anywhere close to its two previous installments. There were a couple of more Home Alone films that were made for television movies that you've probably never heard of, let alone seen. Macaulay Culkin took his success in the Home Alone movies and ventured into other acting opportunities, including My Girl, where his character surprised audiences, I mean, shocked them into horrific disbelief as he is stung to death by a swarm of bees. After that, Culkin appeared in the R-rated suspense thriller, The Good Son, where he again played against type as a psychopathic youth that at one point shoots a dog with a homemade crossbow. Culkin returned to his lighthearted, cartoon-inspired roots by starring in Richie Rich as the world's richest kid, which at the time one might have thought was based on his own personal life story due to his success as a boxer his draw, but Culkin's financial situation was another matter altogether. Culkin's family troubles were well-documented in the press throughout the 1990s, and like many child stars, Culkin was victim to the dizzying highs and tragic lows of being a successful actor in his youth, with his parents tossing in a complicated family dynamic to really make matters worse. After his initial successful run of hit movies, Culkin exited the limelight and quit appearing in movies in 1994. His exit occurred just as his parents were separating. There were disagreements over money and his career path. And it was a real mess that played out in the tabloids. Culkin returned to appear in a couple of feature films including the 2003 release Party Monster and in 2004 Saved. In 2015, he somewhat embraced his legacy as Kevin McAllister and took part in a short film called Just Me in the House by Myself where he plays a slightly unhinged adult version of his character from Home Alone These days, Culkin lives his life in a semi-retired state, alternating residence between Paris and New York. He periodically shows up in a sitcom or web series or independent movie. He hosts a podcast with his friend Matt Cohen where they discuss things. He paints. He writes. He lives his life, thanks in part to the success of Home Alone. Sometimes movies grow in their popularity over time, and films will often find an audience beyond its initial release on the silver screen. That is not the legacy of Home Alone. Home Alone was a cinematic phenomenon, not unlike Steven Spielberg's E.T. or James Cameron's Titanic, and Home Alone returns each year at Christmas to the delight of audiences young and old. But what about the movie itself? Can one be truly comfortable with a family friendly film where the inciting incident is child abandonment? Does a modern day Three Stooges inspired pain fest warrant the moniker holiday classic? And come on, isn't John Candy the best? Well, there's just one way to find out. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry and Marv's I give you 1990s and let's be honest, 1991's Christmas Cash Cow Home Alone. and welcome to pick six movies i'm chad cooper and as always i'm joined by my lovely talented and beautiful baker of holiday treats mr bo ransdell
0: yeah i can make a rainbow and sprinkle it with you chad that's what i can do <laughs> I am making some sausage cheese balls. Hi, everyone. I'm making some sausage cheese balls for the the holidays this year, which are not sweet, but they are savory and they're delicious and they will also kill you. Well, everything will kill you if you consume enough of it. Right. But this is just butter and sausage. You know, <laughs> like it's it's particularly delicious and awful,
1: which reminds me of a movie that I saw once called Home Alone. So here we are, episode five, the penultimate episode of this season, The War on Christmas Movies, where we are joining a a really talented cast of actors, writers, directors, musicians. I mean, this movie is really the whole package. And I just to go ahead and say right now, I know at the end of every season, we rank our movies best to worst. This movie will be the best movie we see. And then we're gonna drop off a huge cliff. And then we're gonna rank the other five awful, awful movies.
0: Yes, there is one movie we discussed this season, and then there are five mistakes. <laughs> and we'll be ranking the mistakes. No, this is a for realzies movie with a for realsies director and uh, as you said in the introduction, like, the score of this movie elevates it so much. Like, from the opening shot of the film, you feel like, oh, this sounds like a an honest-to-goodness movie, Chad.
1: It completely sets the tone for this film, and it says, even if this movie is Taco Bell, at least we're eating on the good china tonight.
0: Right, like you got some farm-to-table Szechuan sauce to dip your chicken nuggets in. <laughs> um, yeah, it's that kind of thing. It's refreshing, honestly. This is one where it's like, no, 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 this is a pretty good Christmas movie. It's a pretty good comedy. It's nice to get that kind of whiff of fresh air in the old Pixix Studios now and again. With something like this, it's like, ah, we can relax and just have a good time. Let the movie happen.
1: I really like that everyone gets top billing above the movie title in this film. It starts off, you know, with Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern. John Hurd, uh, Roberts Blossom, who plays the old man, and then finally, Catherine O'Hara before you even see Home Alone. And to me, it was really sort of a, a sign of respect. For the actors that are in this film, of really saying, you know, these are the stars of the movie across the board. Because they really all play their own part in really bringing this movie together.
0: There is something kind of nice about it. And even the Home Alone logo feels like it's a little classier than we're used to around here. With
1: that tiny little crooked E at the end.
0: Yeah, and even the house kind of set in and all that. It's like, this is fancy. Let me get out the china.
1: (laughs) Our first shot in this movie is of a mansion of a house, which tells us we're dealing with rich people. And this house is huge and it's covered in Christmas lights. Every window and every bush has twinkling tiny bulbs in it. These people, they got some coins okay and you know what else they love Christmas so we know this from the establishing shot
0: yeah it's a real scene of chaos here and it's something I am uniquely unfamiliar with like I've never uh, been certainly not a cacophony like this but even Christmases in general were like five people max you know like if the neighbors came over and this is like 30 people running around screaming and it looks like a nightmare
1: yeah the first shot we get is of Joe Pesci who plays Harry and he's dressed up as maybe a security officer maybe he's a cop we don't really know
0: it says police on his hat
1: yeah, but, but it's at this point, you don't really know who or, or what it is. But yeah, to your point, he ends up turning out pretending to be a cop. More importantly, who let this guy in the house? Because everybody else is just running around as though he's some sort of ornamental statuary that's just standing in the front of the vestibule asking for assistance that all of these people are continually ignoring.
0: Yeah, it had to be one of those kids, man. They're running the joint around here. Why
1: are they ignoring him? I think that everyone in this movie is an asshole. Every single character, except for John Candy, and I'm going to deal with him later, they all exhibit just a level of A-class assholery that is second to none. This movie works across the board, but it is riddled with narcissistic selfish shitheads all of them kevin marv harry the mom the dad all the kids they're just
0: awful people they're not awful people chad they're just suburban white people you know (laughs) i don't (laughs) i mean it's sort of synonymous with asshole (laughs) is everything packed in the minivan all right (laughs) oh jeez uh geez. Is Frank here? What is Frank? What movie is Frank showing you? Oh uh, geez. Uh which, by the way, Uncle Frank, or er, spoilers, my favorite character in this movie because there's some shit going on with Uncle Frank, and I am curious.
1: I could see how you love Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank is the bizarro Uncle Buck. Where, as I noted in the intro, Uncle Buck is absolutely love come to life. Uncle Frank is just a walking piece of shit.
0: Yeah, he is. He looks it too. He's He looks like a John Crickfalusi cartoon.
1: He looks like a guy who would pay a hooker to come over and then he has sex with her while keeping his socks and for some weird reason his boxer shorts on because somehow that doesn't make it as awful a level of infidelity as it
0: really is. Yeah, like the kind of guy who, who wants to take a selfie with just her feet. I could
1: see that. Frank's weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the, the first clue we get of that, like, yeah, Joe Pesci's in the foyer. If I make it a little fancy fancy like this movie Chad. and Joe Pesci is like hey you little motherfuckers no I mean like he doesn't say like this movie is, is pretty squeaky clean when it comes to language and so forth he's down there trying to get uh some answers about if the family is gonna be around for the holidays or not and meanwhile Kevin our hero our hero busts into his parents bedroom Mm-hmm. And it's just like, everybody's watching a movie, but they won't let me watch this movie. And that's bullshit because it's not even rated R. Mm-hmm. Uncle Frank uh, says that I, I'm not old enough. And Catherine O'Hara, this is the first like twinkle in my eye about Uncle Frank, is when Catherine O'Hara says, well, if Uncle Frank won't let you watch it, it must be really bad. And I'm like, well, what, is, what has he shown the kids in the past?
1: I think he's probably just showing them the original Mary Poppins and he's just being an asshole. He's like, no, you can't come in. But it's Mary Poppins. <laughs> like, no, but you can't come in. Frank, you're, you're such an asshole. I know. You can't come in. I'm Frank.
0: This also is the point where I'm reminded that there was a point in my life when I had a real crush on Catherine O'Hara. Really? Yes. Well,
1: you also like Laura Lenny.
0: Yeah, I have a type, Chad. Yeah,
1: you do. You definitely
0: have a type. Canadian.
1: (laughs) Kevin comes into his parents' room and he climbs up on the bed and she's talking on the phone to somebody. And then uh, Catherine O'Hare, the mom, she tells Kevin to get off of her bed. And then Kevin says to his mother, hang up the phone and make me, why don't you? Oh, I know. I wish I could. Hold on. I wish I could say his mom immediately hangs up the phone And knocks Kevin into next week for mouthing off to his mother. I wish I could say that. (laughs) That's my that's my red from Shawshank Redemption. It's not good. (laughs) It, It
0: was evocative, though. And that's what you won out of an impression.
1: Um, (laughs) look as a parent i immediately dislike kevin because he's mouthy and he's a brat uh and he's a rich asshole so all this checks out (laughs)
0: it's like so screw this kid yeah that why don't you make me i'm an adult and i don't care what age you are if you say to me why don't you hang up that phone and make me that's (laughs) what i'm gonna do
1: Unless you're in a dive bar and you're holding a pool cue in one hand and a Coors Light bottle in the other, maybe that's acceptable. You know, where someone's on the payphone and you're like, hey, why don't you hang up that payphone and make me like, all right, motherfucker, it's go time. <laughs> uh
0: huh. Yeah, we're about to get Stroker Ace all up in this piece. Their
1: dad comes into the movie And he starts peppering in A bunch of exposition That'll come into play Later on in the film The dad tells Kevin To go downstairs And pick up his micro machines Which are these tiny cars And one of his aunts Almost slipped and fell on them The dad gets onto Kevin For playing with his glue gun In the garage again Um, And Kevin is eight years old Which should be noted Because of all of the behavior exhibits He's a very smart, mature And clever eight-year-old Most eight-year-olds I know Can barely, you know Tie their shoes And figure out how the TV remote
0: works Well, when you're clearly free frozen out on love by your family, you know, you got to find your own satisfaction and personal accomplishment. Yeah. And it's obviously crafts that he's turned to.
1: Kevin leaves his parents' bedroom and his aunt says to him that he needs to go upstairs and pack his suitcase for their international trip to Paris. If an eight-year-old packs their suitcase, it would be halfway filled with toys, mismatched pajamas, three socks, and a single pair of deeply stained underwear. I know this from experience. Not that I've been to Paris. I've just told my kid to pack his bag, and it is a train wreck.
0: Right. There's one pocket that's nothing but pixie sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Never know when you're going to need those on the road.
1: If you can get out of the house without there being a live animal in it,
0: <laughs> like you're doing great. Right, yeah. I took the cat. Oh, shit. That cat is under the plane right now. This is not <laughs> going to end well.
1: Fish need water to breathe. You can't just, you know what? No, no, no. (laughs) Kevin has two older sisters and two older brothers, but we only know the name of the oldest brother, the big fat one. His name's Buzz. The siblings all one by one parade by Kevin at this point and call him an idiot. And then Kevin throws a tantrum and screams out that when he gets older, he's going to be living alone. Uh, So good for him. We see his unnamed Second brother, or as I call him, Pete's older brother Pete from Nickelodeon's The Adventures of Pete and Pete. That brother Pete nabs Kevin's toothbrush, which comes into play a little bit later. We then cut to the bedroom of the oldest brother, Buzz, and here we see that Buzz has a pet tarantula. We see that on Buzz's door is a life size cutout of Michael Jordan. Buzz also has a BB gun mounted on the wall, and all of this will come into play later in the movie. Kevin asks Buzz if he can sleep in Buzz's room because Kevin has to sleep with a younger cousin who pisses the bed and then buzz tells his younger brother kevin i wouldn't let you sleep with me if you were growing on my ass yeah <laughs> Kevin looks frightened. Yeah. I think that Buzz is just a fat teenage version of Chet from Weird Science.
0: Or the uh, sadistic neighbor kid from Toy Story.
1: Do you think that Kevin might be a younger male version of Molly Ringwald in 16 Candles? Because his family doesn't give a care about him one way or the other. They're just running around ignoring
0: him. Yeah. And hopefully Buzz would end up with Long Duck Dong.
1: Do you think that the old man later on, he just kind of turns out to be you know one of those characters that once we get... Get to know him better he's totally different than we initially thought he was going to be thereby being an amalgamation of everyone from the breakfast club
0: that's right uh, the jock the nerd the. also speaking of uh the old coot we got coming up here in a minute is the surviving brother from christine the one was like hey you want to buy this car shitters and you're like and so when i look at him that's what's going on in my head in this like adorable family film
1: in christine he's wearing that weird truss uh-huh like to keep his hernia from falling out or something and it's all stained with like piss and brown liquor and rodent blood or something
0: sure it's just like nicotine yellow <laughs> because you know that guy is smoking a lot and yelling at wheel of fortune about how the liberals have taken over the media but before we get to him in buzz's room we also get the our first tarantula sighting right uh which i'm acutely aware of because i am both horrified of spiders and an enthusiast of spider related movies tarantulas
1: can't hurt you they can't bite you i don't think they have any sort of poison they're just you know big hairy bugs as Brian fellows referred to them.
0: (laughs) But in the post jaws world that we lived in, in the late seventies and early Mm eighties, if there was an animal that could possibly hurt you, they were going to make a movie of it. And fortunately, Tarantula's got like three or four. Uh, <laughs> my favorite, of course, being Tarantula's The Deadly Cargo, where they are brought into the United States via, I believe it's bananas.
1: That sounds right. Uh-huh. Back to our old man. It's here that we get to meet old man Marley, because naming this character old man Scrooge would be a little too on the nose for a Christmas right. film. Buzz tells some bullshit story about the South Bend Shovel Slayer. This is too long of a name for a mass murderer. Buzz says that uh, this old man murdered his whole family back in 58, which uh, that's the same year that was used in the title of John Hughes' short story, Vacation 58, which was the inspiration for the first vacation movie. Please see episode two of this season to hear more about that. Uh, We also get that this old man kills people and there's this, you know, urban legend and he's essentially this mysterious Boo Radley type character we're all up to speed so far so good
0: yep all right and then we get a pizza delivery guy showing up to to the house and knocks over an iron jockey like one of one of them waspy uh, lawn ornaments that you see in the (laughs) suburbs
1: That you used to see. You probably don't see them too much anymore.
0: No, no, certainly not, because it's like a half step away from blackface.
1: It's not a half step away. It's it's you have a little statue of a tiny black man with dressed as a horse jockey that you attach your horse to like what are you doing why do you have a statue of a little black man on your lawn like well i'm i'm racist and i'm rich and i'm white oh excuse me i'm so sorry
0: <laughs> yeah what was that supposed to signify
1: that you're racist
0: <laughs> was it really that dog whistle kind of lawn ornament
1: it's not a dog whistle bow it's a megaphone you put that out on your lawn and it's like oh he's
0: one of us fantastic oh i gotta get rid of mine <laughs> i did not know all of that because uh, <laughs> i've got like 12
1: Yeah, that's excessive. Now you've moved from racist to just hoarder.
0: That's the problem with inheritance, Chad.
1: When that pizza guy comes in, he's got 10 pies, and then the dad comes down, and he finally acknowledges Harry, the police officer. Harry's been in this house for, what, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, with all these people rushing around, and no one's acknowledging him. And then someone in the family comes in and takes all of the pizzas from this pizza guy without giving him
0: any money because they're assholes. Because it's Uncle Frank. He's the one who's like, I'll take these Yoink! and then <laughs> fucks off. And the guy's like, hey, I need my money. And they're like, oh, talk to my brother. He owns the place.
1: Right. And then the dad tells Harry that the whole family's going to Europe and their house is full of valuables and it's going to be unsupervised and it's ripe for the picking and exposition, exposition. And then after the, Frank splits with the pizzas, everyone just starts cramming it in their face, which look, man, I delivered pizzas in my youth. Pizza and money are exchanged at the exact same time. It is a real give me the whip, throw me the idol situation. There's none of this shit of like, I'm just going to give you the pizza and hope someone comes back. Because if you show back up at whatever pizza place, you're like, yeah, they didn't give me any money. Like, guess what? You're fucking not making any money now. That shit's coming out of your pocket.
0: I have lost in the idea of like, throw me the coupon. I give you the pepperoni.
1: (laughs) kevin rolls into the kitchen and he's all pissed off because there's no cheese pizza left for him and buzz says that he ate all the cheese pizza on purpose because buzz is an asshole kevin gets so pissed off that he tackles his fat older brother and this knocks some milk over onto the table which spills over onto their plane tickets and everyone's passports there's a huge commotion some product place pepsi gets spilled the dad cleans up the mess and it's here that he throws away kevin's passport and one of the things about this movie and we'll touch on this a lot this film from both a writing and a directing standpoint does an excellent job of seeding all of the plot details that are required to be paid off in a very complicated story of how a kid could be left at home by himself and then all of the props or plot devices that would be required to pay off the mayhem in the third act
0: sure there's never a question in the third act of like well how did he know how to do this or whatever it's all set up and it it really is beautifully constructed it's a a really impressive screenplay and in that way that like everything in the movie is a Chekhov something, you know, <laughs> like everything pays off.
1: <laughs> so we have Chekhov's Tarantula, Chekhov's Michael Jordan's cutout,
0: Chekhov's laundry shoot, Chekhov's checkoff list. Like it, it's all there. There are no loose threads that I can think of in this film like everything from seeing the old man shoveling snow which turns into a critical part of the movie in a lot of ways all that stuff is so carefully and expertly set up in in the grand scheme of things and we're kind of glossing over the real nightmare scenario in all of this is why the fuck is milk on this table who is drinking milk with dinner that is not right don't let your families do this with pizza right there are bottles of pepsi right there what are you doing Yes, and leaving it out on the table like an animal? What is going on here?
1: Well, the mom does say, hey, drink all the milk because we're going to be gone for three weeks with all of our valuables here unprotected. So glug glug. During this commotion in the kitchen, Uncle Frank gets all up in Kevin's face and he says to an eight year old child, look what you did, you little jerk.
0: (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Oh, Uncle Frank, you're my kind of guy.
1: I would punch a relative in the mouth if they spoke to my kid that way. To be honest, it wouldn't be all about disrespecting my kid. I'm just looking for any reason to throw a punch at most family
0: get-togethers. Sure. I do like the idea of an adult just being like, you fucking asshole. (laughs) To a child. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. You can't even appreciate what a fucking dick you are right now.
1: (laughs) There's a pan across the kitchen and the whole disgusted family is staring at Kevin with just seething hatred in their eyes. Because this is a family that loves their pizza and Kevin's attack on
0: Buzz ruined their dinner. This family has like five kids. They lose one. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I mean, they've got like a prairie style family where one would just wander off into the wheat. And it was like, all right, we got eight more.
1: (laughs) The mom, Catherine O'Hara escorts Kevin out of the kitchen as he's being sentenced to sleep in the attic, which, Hey, look, good thing. You're not living in the Griswold house on her way to lock Kevin in the attic. The mom goes back to the front area of the house to find the pizza delivery guy. And she finally pays him some money. And then she sees Harry still dressed as a cop hanging out there. And she's like, yeah, yeah, we're all good. And then Kevin yells at the pizza guy. Why didn't you bring more cheese pizzas? As if that's how pizza delivery works. Like the driver just randomly brings whatever he wants to people's houses. Like he's." the pizza santa claus
0: the pizza sommelier (laughs) what what neighborhood did you say Mm, that is a nice neighborhood they're gonna want a hawaiian trust me
1: that's not what they want it's what they need
0: as soon as they take a bite into the ham and pineapple in the same bite and they get that savory with the sweet they're gonna thank us all
1: have you met someone in your life that likes ham and pineapple pizza i don't mean like they'll eat it but it's like hey what do you want on your pizza like oh i want a hawaiian pizza ham and pineapple
0: only in college and i feel like that was the time where we were all experimenting was
1: that like the same person who had a iguana as a pet
0: right had a tattoo of judy garland for no reason
1: (laughs) you know (laughs) i don't know man i'm just exploring i hear ham and pineapple and i'm like okay okay great great and then when the pizzas show up ham and pineapple isn't there i'm like oh yeah they were out of ham and pineapple
0: and by out of i mean no one else in this room ever thought that was a good idea (laughs) so sit down derek eat eat the fucking pepperoni (laughs) like the rest of us
1: here the mom gives more exposition about how they're going to paris and how her brother this and the home will be empty that and then kevin looks up at harry and sees that he has a gold tooth that shimmers in the light and again this comes back later in the movie good for you screenplay good for you direct
0: yeah oh it's so good so well done
1: finally harry leaves the house after being there for what three hours looking for someone to talk to him and then the mom takes kevin up to the attic where he's gonna sleep for the night and then kevin calls his mother a dummy and then he says family suck Which, whenever anybody says, like, hey, man, this sucks, that just means, like, this sucks dick, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know I got in trouble the first time I said it around my parents.
1: (laughs) You know, times change, but that's what it means. (laughs) Yeah. Kevin tells his mother, I don't want to see you for the rest of my life. And then he caps it off with, I hope I never see any of you jerks again. I get that this movie is about Kevin learning to appreciate his family and in some ways overcome his fears during the Christmas holidays. But at the beginning of this film, he's really an unlikable character. And at this point, when mm-hmm. he wishes to himself that he doesn't have a family, you're kind of like, well, well you know, maybe you're going to get what you deserve, you rotten jackass.
0: <laughs> you filthy animal. Um <laughs> It's a gag that gets used maybe one too many times in this movie. Yeah, I, yeah, he's a terrible kid. Do they go too far with it? Maybe. But also, I like the fact that Catherine O'Hara in this scene, very sexily, says, You know, Kevin, I hope you don't mean that. And he's like, I do. And she's like, well, then say it again. Go ahead, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you want to dare God? Go ahead. Say it one more time. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I like that she calls him on his shit and but he's he's down for it he's like you're telling me to draw and i will and it, it's a real family of jerks <laughs> ultimately
1: This movie, in many ways, plays out like a fairy tale. You know, in the third act, it plays out like a Warner Brothers cartoon. But I really like the fairy tale quality of this movie, and specifically even the following scene where you get this overnight sequence of events with the wind blowing and the howling and the tree branches scraping the the windows of the houses. The music that accompanies it makes it feel almost very supernatural and very dreamlike. Mm -hmm. During the storm, a tree branch falls and cuts off the power to the house. Everyone oversleeps and is awakened by an airport driver that's there to pick them up in not one, but two vans, because there are 15 of them going to the airport that day. Important. This will come up later. Everyone scrambles to get up and then a neighbor kid comes over and he's all nosy about them leaving. And therefore, when uh, the one of the older siblings counts the heads of the kids, um, she counts all the kids. And this neighbor kid is counted in place of Kevin, who is still upstairs, asleep in the attic
0: there's a point here where the repairman uh is there for the electric and he, he tells katherine o'hara who's you know rushing around like they're all trying to get to the airport he says hey the electricity is going to be restored but this is important for the rest of the story the phones are going to be down for a couple of days and she's like her reaction to that information is just like fine who gives a shit you see i'm dealing with the, look at all these kids how about you go do your job peon <laughs> It is a wonderful reaction. Catherine O'Hara gives
1: him a real, who gives a shit? We're rich and late for our plane to France. (laughs) Look,
0: (laughs) it's the best, man. It is.
1: Yeah. Okay. Oh, and I like her. I like her playing this type of character, and she does a fantastic job in this movie. But if you really take a couple of steps back and look at the broader picture, she's a monster.
0: Oh, yeah. There is a point where, when she's in the polka van, that the look she gives John Candy, where you're like, you are being a, just a complete jerk to him right now. <laughs> like this guy has been over backwards for you and you're kind of giving him some, some shit, but we'll get to that. The
1: family rushes to what is clearly a pre nine 11 airport. There's no TSA screening. There's no sniffing dogs, no shoe removal. It was, you know, a simpler time. The family gets on the plane. Adults go in first class. The kids go in coach. You know what? Home alone parents. Fuck you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uncle frank asks for champagne before they even sit down and he says it's free isn't it Uh uh-huh we already hate uncle frank why does this movie work so hard to make us dislike this at best secondary character in the film
0: look you know my stance on uncle frank and this is just another brick in that wall chad because i like the fact that he knows a deal when he sees it when he's like hey hey (laughs) how much is this champagne nothing bring me a lot of it
1: frank's on the plane later in the movie and he that the salt and pepper shakers are real crystal and he tells his wife to steal them from the plane yeah how could he go any lower like what maybe give his his wife a smack in the chops like kick a dog
0: but frank is the kind of guy that when you were over at his house for dinner say i mean don't go over for dinner because it's gonna be a terrible night but if you did he would have those uh salt and pepper shakers on the table and would tell you exactly how he got them yeah, I stole those. <laughs> I stole those from, from a first class flight to Paris. They're fancy, huh?
1: We cut back to the house and Kevin wakes up and his whole family is gone. His Christmas wish has come true. And it. this is every rotten kid slash kid from an abusive household's dream come true the stage has been set and we are transitioning into kevin being at home by himself
0: one thing that i think is noteworthy here because it's sort of the thematic core of this film is that when he realizes or he begins to suspect that no one is there the first person he calls for is his mother yes she is nowhere to be found and he is quite literally chad home alone i refuse to put those two words together in my commentary on this film that the
1: phrase home followed at a latter point, the word alone uh. is said no less than 12 times in this movie. And in watching the film, when they say it, you're just brought out of the fact that you're watching the film. It, it, it's very weird. It'd be like, if you're watching, I don't know, jaws. And they're like, like this shark has got a giant pair of
0: jaws. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it in this movie. I don't count. I only count the first time a character says it, where it's like, oh, look, Kevin just said he was home alone. Sure. And, oh, his mom just said he was home alone. Oh, Joe Pesci got a turn. That's nice to see. Okay. (laughs) Live from New York. Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't know what that means.
1: Kevin wanders around his now 100% family-free house, and we get shots of the parents' room, which has lots of sewing equipment, and in the basement they're sewing mannequins, and we see the tarantula in its glass case. So when all of these props show up later, you don't think that this is a house of horrors filled with nude headless bodies and you know, giant arachnids. This movie does a very good job of establishing the layout of the house as Kevin walks around. We know that there is an attic and it has stairs. We know the layout of the second floor and the staircase that goes down to the ground level. There's a set of stairs that go to the basement and you really get a sense of place of where Kevin could go in the third act. And this is because Chris Columbus is a really good director.
0: Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Like, even the moment with the furnace monster in the basement, when Kevin sees the furnace and it, like, starts to growl and there's the tight zoom on it and everything. It's like, this is a really nice visualization of that sort of childhood imagination of the monster under the Mm -hmm. bed or the, the, you know... The, fur- the furnace being this evil creature that lived in your basement. <laughs> Again, it's so refreshing, Chad. As we're watching these movies to be like, oh, that was well done. Like, that was my note there was like, oh, this is a really nice bit about like capturing the concept of childhood imagination on film.
1: Not only the imagination, but the fears and the kind of the worries and, you know, what you would do if you're a kid. Yeah, it, it all comes together. There, there's a reason that this movie made million.
0: (laughs) I'll tell you, they didn't do it on the back of, uh, Macaulay Culkin's eyebrows wiggling because he's shit at it. Like I know he's a kid in this movie, but when he's like, I made my family disappear. i made my family disappear it's like the most tortured eyebrow wiggle you ever saw it's not even it's not uniform in any way like one of them is a little slower than the other you're like oh i think it's gonna catch up and then it finally does and that doesn't look right either it's it's a real mess
1: when kevin says that he proceeds to just go ape shit and run around buck wild and takes over the whole house he jumps on his parents bed while eating popcorn defiling their holy resting place with his shoes and his snacks and this scene has a real jazzy number playing is he just goes crazy and runs around in fast motion and screams at the camera and this scene had to be influenced by peewee's playhouse
0: right that or any number of they might be giants videos yes
1: i'm going more the former than the latter because peewee's sure. Playhouse ran from 86 to 90 right when this came out and the number of times that he looks in the camera and goes ah! i mean that's that's full on you know peewee herman and the running and the flailing of the arms, it just, the whole thing just feels like you know, I want to hear Cindy Lauper telling me to
0: get out of bed. There'll be no more napping. Oh, it's a great theme song. It is. Um, sorry. I got to show you, like, you <laughs> as soon as you say it, it's just get out of bed. <laughs> there'll be no more napping. <laughs> fuck it's good kevin
1: goes into buzz's room and he opens the storage trunk that's full of twinkies junior mints cookies gum jerk off magazine and most <laughs> shockingly of all a product from frito-lay called crunch taters <laughs> what the hell was that product
0: i don't know it was a shot across the bow to tater tots i don't know i don't know who they were going after with that product but uh that was a He was you know throwing perfectly good pornography away but i love the fact that uh the movie's philosophy like the innocence of this movie is like okay here's the porn mag and you know maybe that's questionable but him going like naked people and then just tosses it over his shoulder and it's like okay that's there there is a a certain sort of naivete that this movie is embracing that i kind of like
1: this movie happens in kevin's five six years older He's just spending two, three days just jerking off and eating tater crunches and ordering pizza. Oh, right? sure.
0: There's, like in this pre-internet world, <laughs> he is, yeah, he's doing, he's like, it's a stroke mag. that There's a reason they call it that. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. <laughs> Trust me, th- like he never gets around to watching an Angels with Filthy Faces or whatever.
1: He ends up watching uh, Angels with Dirty Facials.
0: Oh, I was going to go <laughs> Angels with Pearly Faces you yeah
1: <laughs> kevin also takes buzz's bb gun off the wall and then he proceeds to shoot some action figures inside the house and he's a real crack shot at this he makes this insane ice cream sundae and then he puts a cassette tape of this movie as we've noted angels with dirty uh, souls Is that what it is? Angels with Filthy Souls? And it looks like this movie from the 40s because you know what? That's what every kid would watch. An old black and white gangster movie.
0: Right. Film noir. He's like I really like The Third Man and Angels with Filthy Faces. (laughs) I really think there's a lot of Jacques Tournier in this. Um, No, it's ridiculous but it's also kind of fun because it's like it's almost Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid uh, a little bit in this moment of just this faux gangster movie where where an older guy's like listen to me snakes I, I i'm on to you see and has a tommy gun and blows the dude away as happens in these sorts of films and snake jumps a bunch and like again to the it, it's portraying a a sort of innocent time in film as well like there are bullet holes but there's no blood or anything like that and the guy just kind of jiggles and falls down but it freaks kevin out and he's like ah mom and calls for his mother because he's he's scared by the violence
1: right i mean whenever i got scared i always called out to the person that would lock me in the attic whenever i
0: made a small mistake It's not the first time he's been locked in the attic. (laughs) Not
1: not with his behavior, you know. Speaking of Kevin's horrible mom, she's on the plane and she has this nagging feeling that she's forgotten something. And it's here after a little bit of consternation, she realizes that she has left Kevin at home all by himself. We cut back to the house and Kevin is now riding a wooden toboggan down the carpeted stairs of their house right out the front door into the snow. And it's pretty awesome. This is what a kid would do. Like, I'm going to, you know, insanely... Take this from the house, out the door, into the yard. I was impressed. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a fun little scene and it's well directed. Like, you know, when he hits the porch, he inexplicably hits an invisible ramp there as well, apparently. Like, goes sailing off <laughs> and everything. But it's fun, you know? Again, if you're a kid watching this movie, this would be the coolest thing you ever saw. And would be immediately like, I wonder if I can toboggan down my stairs.
1: And if you're a stepdad watching this movie, you're like, Bullshit. Well, that kid didn't get you no know, goddamn
0: crown like that. Bullshit. I tried that with my brother, and all he did was break an arm. <laughs> so fuck you, Home Alone. <laughs> you get me a, another red stripe, Kenny. <laughs> We're all out, Darren. I said, get me a red stripe. That means you got to shake your fucking toboggan ass down to the <laughs> the quick sack. And convince them to sell you a seven-year-old, a six-pack of red strap, and that is what is going to goddamn happen. Take
1: my ID, take my checkbook, and just fill it out.
0: You know how it works. God dang! Here's my. You tell them to call me on this phone, not not this phone. This phone.
1: <laughs> it's nighttime, and we see Harry, who is played by Joe Pesci. And now he's not wearing his cop uniform. And this is where we get to meet Marv. He's played by Daniel Stern. Harry and Marv are sitting in the van and Harry has the houses staked out to such a degree that he knows when their lights will come on with their automatic timers. And one by one, he calls out the time and then the lights come on. And then these two essentially say, hey, look, we're going to go rob these rich assholes. Harry and Marv go over to Kevin's house to break in and Kevin gets scared and he turns out the light and Harry and Marv split because they think that maybe the family is still at home. Kevin runs and hides under his parents' bed because... After all, he's an eight-year-old kid. Look, that would be terrifying for an adult to be in your house by yourself and have burglars try to break in because I'm a goddamn adult. If I hear a random unexpected creak or pop in the middle of the night, I am automatically thinking this is a home invasion and it is going to end with someone getting pistol whipped.
0: Uh, right. Like I'm in a real fight or flight situation now. And meanwhile, yeah, it's, you know, nothing. Another thing that I really kind of dig about this scene is that when we first see Harry and Marv contemplating their robbery spots, the first thing that Daniel Stern asks if they're going to steal is toys.
1: Yeah, he says, are there going to be toys?
0: Yeah. I was like, oh, this is kind of nice that these aren't grown up scary people. And later we see Joe Pesci playing with a remote control car. And it's like, well, these are cartoons of people. Right. Nicely setting up what comes later because we need these characters to be kind of ridiculous and childlike early on. So when we torture them for 30 minutes of this film, it makes some kind of sense and doesn't feel terrible, which it it certainly could.
1: And I think part of that is really buoyed by the casting of Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern. I think if you had taken these characters and say cast them with, I don't know, John Malkovich and Jackie Earl Haley, it takes a tone that could never dip its toe into the ridiculous cartoonish nature that this film is instead it, it really becomes a Bloomhouse production
0: yes jackie earl haley from little children
1: jackie earl haley from everything except the bad news bears everything else he's made is just like you were just a walking nightmare
0: <laughs> yeah he's made a real living off of being like a just a complete dirt bag <laughs> um, which he seems like a nice guy it's funny that you know he has become such a pervert on film. So
1: we cut to the airport in France and the whole family is just dashing like whatever a pack of frantic white people is called. I think it's called an Osmond of white people. (laughs) (laughs) depending it you know it kind of depends on what they're gathering for because you might call them a clan of white people but that's not what we see in this movie that is a that is a very different gathering of white folk yes speaking of a clan Uh, of white uh, people it's here that we get to see our first non-white person in this entire movie because there is a black couple in the paris airport which that's nice mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) well they're foreign clearly um (laughs)
1: Kevin's mom goes up to some random French woman who's talking on a payphone and in what I would call behavior that is completely unlike the polite, respectful American behavior that I know she just gets all up in this woman's business and tells her in English, mind you, to get off the phone because she's an irresponsible mom and left her child who is most likely dead in their house back in the United States and charges will most likely be filed against her that she needs to use this phone.
0: I hadn't really considered the fact that her mad Flight home may be more inspired (laughs) by trying not to be arrested for child endangerment, but I think there's a real argument to be made there.
1: We've not seen this type of payphone hijacking since Burt Reynolds interrupted James Best's hospital phone sex in the end. See episode six, (laughs) season one, the films of Turd Ferguson, where we examine the Uber of Mr. Burt Reynolds. Anyway,
0: wow, you are on brand tonight. (laughs) I like it. So, (laughs) <laughs> Kevin, while Catherine O'Hara strong-arming French women off of payphones, Kevin goes outside and kind of screams into the night air, I'm not afraid anymore, you know, this coming off the heels of uh, the near break-in, and runs into old man shitters from Christine coming around a tree. Like, he might as well drape a withered hand on the side of the tree and slowly reveal himself the way he comes around phantom of the opera style organ music playing and the whole deal Mm -hmm. and kevin sees him and immediately bolts back into the house uh screaming
1: he goes back and hides under his parents bed in what i'm assuming is a puddle of his own piss
0: sure and catherine o'hara then uh has finally gotten this poor french lady off the phone probably after like a a physical assault of some sort (laughs) and Calls the police department and veteran character actor Larry Hankin shows up. So she calls the police and she's like, "Hey, my son is home alone. Didn't you read the script?" And the police lady is like, "I did, but is he in danger? And I can get you over to like family services." And she's like, "Yes, he is in danger." And so she transfers the call to Larry Hankin, who has like that list. Of, like bureaucracy is just all shit in this movie. It's kind of a John use staple is that anytime you're dealing with any kind of organization or or red tape of any kind it's all gonna be a nightmare it's that kind of thing where larry hankin is like has your son ingested any poison or anything like that and she's like no and he's like okay let me refer you back to the police and Finally, she gets somebody to agree to do what police are theoretically there to do, which is to send a police officer to the house to make sure that Kevin is okay. She never calls back, strangely. in the course of the film because uh, she's like hey uh, she's got her herself covered now legally speaking mm-hmm. by sending the police to the house she doesn't really care if he's okay she's like look what, I'm gonna get there and whatever I find I find there's nothing I can do about that
1: I like this cop who shows up at the house to check th- on Kevin he like knocks on the door and nobody answers and he's like fuck it he's like if there's a kid inside he's probably <laughs> dead or maybe worse who cares I'm gonna go climb back into my patrol car get behind the wheel and then head towards the bottom of that bottle that's riding shotgun <laughs> this dude didn't give a shit.
0: yeah he's got a lot of quit in him uh <laughs> for sure it's like bad <laughs>
1: lieutenant <laughs> Chicago
0: yeah like we're just lucky he didn't jerk off in front of the stranger's <laughs> window you know Kevin is kind of hiding anyway because of uh seeing the creepy old man yeah but the cop does just like radio back is like everything's cool out here y'all no kids. They're like, okay. Back at the
1: airport in France, Catherine O'Hara and the dad and the whole asshole family are, are standing around and there are no flights back to the United States. And then Catherine O'Hara asks, what about private planes? How rich are these people that flying a private plane from Paris to Chicago is
0: an option? On the fly. Yeah. Like at Christmas. You're right. Right. <laughs> How much is it going to cost? It doesn't matter what you say. We'll pay it. Like, should I show you pictures of my house? Is that what it's going to take? Is that the collateral you need? to know that I can afford a (laughs) private jet listen Frenchie you get a pilot on the phone and you get a a Lear on that tarmac right now so the option here that is presented is Catherine O'Hara can just be on standby and hang out and hope that a seat opens up so that's what she's gonna do because you know she's a mother determined to get back to her child on Christmas and so the movie just kind of bids a fond adieu to John Heard for the most of the movie now and it's like well it was nice having you here you know it was kind of fun like oh yeah you guys were both in chud that's cool see you later i guess
1: we'll see you in sharknado one
0: yeah yeah i'll see you at the end of the movie um, it's kind of sad Bittersweet We get a really nice scene next Where Kevin is doing this inventory In the mirror of grown up things He's done Of like you know I Well I got up You know I shave And uh use this And you know
1: Yeah he's putting on deodorant And he's talking about What his day is going to involve And he's wearing this big
0: towel And it's
1: here that he slaps his face With the aftershave And gives us the signature Kevin scream There was no way you couldn't see it When this movie came out
0: Right I mean it's eponymous Because not just in Home Alone and the offshoot movies and whatnot, but in just pop culture, like it is a thing that has been often mimicked. That slapping of the cheeks was a ripple in pop culture and and it, it's really amazing that that little moment in this movie is what people were just like oh my god did you see the bit where this boy has some aftershave on and he had just shaved and he don't know it stings and (laughs) and then it just stings him all to fire.
1: During the scene he mentions that he can't find his toothbrush and he needs to replace this which which this is a toothbrush that his older brother Pete who's the older brother of Pete from Nickelodeon's Pete and Pete he grabbed it earlier so that's they, they set that up to pay that off to give him a reason to get out of the house and then it's here that Kevin goes to his brother Buzz's room and climbs up on some shelves to get a metal box that's got some money in it. And in doing so, he rips down the shelves, which causes the housing of the tarantula to break, thus allowing the tarantula to escape,
0: which will come to play later. So yeah, we are going to have no less than like five shots in this movie. They're like, remember the tarantula?
1: And as soon as Kevin grabs this money, he takes it to go replace his toothbrush, something that 99.9% of all kids would never do. Getting any child to perform anything resembling basic hygiene is damn near impossible. Brushing, washing, wiping. Forget about it. This kid can't find his toothbrush. Guess what? I wasn't looking for it in the first place.
0: My theory is that Kevin is one of them kids from like the movie Orphan where they're secretly like 32. They've just got a gland thing.
1: He's the oldest one of the bunch. Uh Uh-huh. That's why he was so bold and and kicking Buzz's ass when he ate his cheese pizza. Like, like, fuck you. You're 10 years
0: younger than me. Right, right. I got a kid that's almost as old as you (laughs) Give me my fucking toothbrush
1: We cut to Harry and Marv And they're inside a different neighborhood house uh, Doing the best on-screen Ransacking that I've ever seen They're just destroying this house And as you noted earlier Harry's playing with a car While Marv is wearing a swimming mask With a snorkel (laughs) And just destroying everything with a crowbar As we talked about earlier These characters are really playful In their criminal mischief And they're set up essentially as bad guys in a movie that is safe for children as harry and marv are destroying this house kevin's dad calls and leaves a message on the answering machine about how the whole family is in paris and how they need the neighbors to call them if they get home and it's at this point harry and marv realize that kevin is in a house that is ostensibly
0: empty right they have now through just falling ass backwards into good intel uh now know that there is no reason not to go after the house that very night and Kevin, meanwhile, is at the store.
1: It's an independently owned pharmacy. It takes a new toothbrush up to some old lady drugstore clerk and asks if it's approved by the American Dental Association. What kid says that? None. Um, the old lady clerk is like, I don't know, because she's an asshole. Everybody in this movie's an asshole. And she calls over the pharmacist and she's like, Hey, is this approved by the American Dental Association? And the pharmacist look on his face, he's like, Fuck if I know, who cares? Like, what are you why are you, I'm in the back doling out OxyContin, you know, at the back door. I'm trying to make an extra buck or
0: two. Yeah. But I've been going one for you, one for me all morning. I am not in the mood for this question. You know what I'm saying?
1: It's here that Old Man Marley from next door creeps up and then bangs his hand down on the counter. And Old Man Marley's hand is wrapped in a white bandage that has blood coming out of the palm of the hand. But at the same time, there is blood coming out of the back of the hand, which is that stigmata or is he Jesus?
0: <laughs> yeah. I always assumed it was stigmata that, uh, you know, it is the Christmas season, Chad, and he and his son had to be (laughs) fighting about something. And I'm assuming that it was his father's uh, spontaneous stigmata around the holidays. You're making this up. This is some kind of parlor trick. No, son, it's not. It's the will of Christ. Grab my nameless redheaded daughter. We're going to get out of (laughs) here.
1: Kevin freaks out and runs out of the pharmacy, toothbrush in hand, thus instantly becoming a shoplifter. And the old lady at the counter screams. It's a teenager who's working in the pharmacy. And this kid... Clearly never gets laid. As the old lady screams at this teenager in the pharmacy, he's she's like, like, Go after that kid, he's got a 99 cent toothbrush. And this unlaid teenager pharmacy worker gives chase, and then Kevin runs off. And the unlaid uh, teenager pharmacy worker screams at a nearby cop to he's like, Hey, chase after that kid, he stole something. And then there's a cop who's in the middle of serving a ticket to a woman in a car. It looks like you know, some sort of traffic stop. And this cop takes off on foot after a child because this might be what a
0: felony <laughs> right who knows what he took yeah he's small but he's fleet foot, and he doesn't know what the kid stole at this point it's not like you know the pimply teenager was like he got a toothbrush get him <laughs> you know it was just like hey he stole from us he's a shoplifter and so he's like oh well he's coming out of the pharmacy he's
1: got morphine
0: <laughs> right he's got some pills this little son of a bitch stole pills probably for like an older brother or like his parents are strung out like i get a lot of wire inspired uh, <laughs> fantasies about what's going on in the backstory of that but as far as the cop knows it's like hey this kid's stealing drugs i gotta go get him
1: kevin escapes dashing across a frozen pond that's filled with ice skaters and hockey players and eskimos and penguins and
0: i think that coca-cola christmas bear was just there on the sidelines just <laughs> mm. Go <laughs> go. Home alone's good, everyone. Mm.
1: On his way home, Kevin feels remorse for stealing. So, kids, remember, stealing is bad. And you can't fly without an elf holding your hand. We c- <laughs> We cut back to Harry and Marv and they're in this house that they destroyed and then Marv stops uh, to clog the sink with a rag and he turns on the faucet that will then in turn flood the house because Marv is an asshole. Everybody in this movie is an asshole.
0: I need a judgment call on this though because when Harry like when Marv turns the the water on and goes back to the van and he's kind of giggling about it, Harry's like what's so what's so fucking funny? And uh he's like I I left the water on or you know, he guesses it. And this is where we hear the name for the first time, like the Wet Bandits. But but Harry's reaction to this news that he has left the water running again, is you're sick. And I'm like, uh, I mean, that's not the word I would choose. That doesn't seem particularly sick. It's kind of an asshole move. No doubt about that. Ruins floors. Like it's going to cost thousands of dollars and in damage to the property and whatnot, but sick.
1: This is a man who really covets physical property. And the fact that you're like, we, we not only defiled your house, we arguably damaged the structural foundation in such a way that this home may never make its way to the real sale market again.
0: (laughs) We have have essentially salted the earth. (laughs) So not only do we have your $250 stereo we have also Caused you literally hundreds of Thousands of dollars I mean look at these Homes
1: Harry and Marv leave this Neighbor's house in their blue van And Marv looks up at the very Last second and sees Kevin walking down The street and Marv screams out look Out and Harry slams on the brake stopping The van missing Kevin by inches And had Marv looked up just a Half second later we have A very different movie because Catherine O'Hara comes home to find That her son is dead He was found deceased in the neighbor's driveway. There are no suspects because these two are a gun. There are no witnesses because everybody in the neighborhood is somewhere that's not there. And she now has four kids and a lifetime of unimaginable guilt.
0: Yeah. Uh, You call that movie. We really need to talk about Kevin. (laughs) I think it's called Kevin's in heaven. Uh Uh-huh. And then it's on Hallmark and the movie is about him being an angel. That Mm. saves Christmas. Um, uh, again, this is one of those Chekhov things, like, with the the gold tooth, where it's only because Joe Pesci goes out of his way to kind of be nice to Kevin, like, after yelling, like, hey, you motherfucker, watch where you're going, and uh, Kevin gets out of the way, he's like, I know, I'm sorry, and he's he kind of feels bad about it, and it's like, hey, kid, Merry Christmas, and gives him a smile, but it's the kind of smile that only Joe Pesci can give you, where it's like, you see this smile coming your way, you're about to get rubbed out,
2: you know, like,
0: so that... <laughs> Something's about to get dropped on you, or somebody's going to shoot you. Something terrible is about to happen.
1: There's a baseball bat in one hand, hidden behind his back.
0: Uh Uh-huh, yeah, enthusiasms, enthusiasms. (laughs) Uh, Mix of my Italian actors. Uh, But Kevin sees the gold tooth and is like, son of a bitch, that was the guy who was playing a cop, and he's clearly not a cop.
1: No, he's a creep in a van. Uh Uh-huh. Is that redundant to say that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't... hmm, I'm just trying to think of the exception, you know?
1: (laughs) There isn't one.
0: (laughs) No, I can't. You're right. It's... Yes, they are one in the same.
1: Well, Kevin proceeds to walk home slowly and Harry and Marv are driving behind him, like maybe 20 feet away in this conversion van that has no side windows. And Harry's driving really slowly. And this whole scene has a real Mystic River vibe to it as he's, he's putting one foot in front of the other. And there's just kind of the right behind him of this van,
0: right? Like Marv is just like, you know, the story of the Wolfman, Harry. You ever feel like that sometimes like there's this monster inside of you, Harry? Barf.
1: <laughs> Kevin runs to a church and hides in a manger scene and then Harry and Marv drive by so we'll we'll see them again later. Kevin runs home and he says, "When those guys come back, I'll be ready." This is one part of the movie that does not sit well with me. In fact, it's the only part of this movie that does not sit well. There's nothing about the character of Kevin that leads us to believe that he is capable of constructing such elaborate contraptions of deceit and mayhem. Other than he's just like kids are clever and smart. And this is a children's movie and kids are smarter than adults, which they're not. And he's just sort of filled with all all of this imagination and, you know, wacky. Um, ideas of how he's going to defend his home when all of that comes together in the third act it feels like that the movie gives you all of the props for him to do that but it doesn't give you the the motive or the history of his character to be able to pull it all off
0: right i think you're exactly right though i think i think the reason that this is as it is is it's it's fantasy for kids and there's a cartoon element to it as well it's like well why why does bugs bunny uh hide behind that rock and then come out dressed as a stewardess you know, like eh, just it, it's cartoon logic, right? You know? And and there there is a lot of that work, and and so we get some of that here. One thing I would also point out uh, that we we kind of glossed over here is that when Harry and Marv are following him past the church, they're like, "We gotta get out of here!" Like they're afraid to go in church because it's like we're up to the devil's business. We we can't we can't be in the house of God. They are such villains that they detest church, like they're they're satanic. And I like that (laughs) chat. gave it an, a, a whiff of the supernatural that i enjoyed
1: <laughs> i just took it that they had robbed the church within the last week or so like
0: don't go in there they got our prince <laughs> i was like you know ooh, our tootsies will start to burn if we go in there <laughs> uh harry and marv pull up to the mcallister place they see people moving around in the windows which is to your point this completely impossible thing that kevin mcallister has rigged up which involves christmas trains with with dummies on them and record players spinning mannequins around and all to create silhouettes because as a child children have such a, a grasp of lighting and how to throw shadows and make sure that you know from the outside it's going to be clear that a cocktail party is happening in here it's all a crazy make up but it, it's also pretty effective because Harry and Marv fall forward hook line and sinker are like a you know a cocktail party yeah and we got to get out of here yeah
1: there's all kinds of mannequins with ropes tied to them and those ropes are attached to kevin and as he's bebopping around to rocking around the christmas tree that again that's how you know that a christmas party is happening when that song is playing um these mannequins are pitching you know to and fro which again it, a kid doing this it's cute and clever If you make Kevin over the age of 29, it's terrifyingly frightening. (laughs) Harry and Marv, as you noted, just kind of split. And they're like, yeah, we'll come back tomorrow and rob this place. It's here that we cut... Back to France, where all 15 of these assholes are staying with another family member in Paris. And I feel so sorry for those people hosting these 15 assholes. Uncle Frank, your favorite character, he just starts handing out shrimp cocktail that his gracious host informs Frank is meant for later. And then Frank just totally ignores
0: her because it's Uncle Frank. Well, they never thought they were going to come to Paris when they said, Hey, you know what? We're just going to stay in France this year. If you guys want to come to Paris, you're certainly welcome this christmas but you know i understand it's a long <laughs> trip it's christmas oh you you want to come oh
1: we're gonna charter a private plane
0: <laughs> oh right i forgot you guys were rich and didn't use your money wisely <laughs> oh shit let me talk to barbara um, but yeah, I like never thought they were going to be there in the first place. And the fact that all these people are running around just being complete assholes, Frank on up. Like even John Hurt is being a bit of a jerk.
1: Everybody in this movie is an asshole, Bo. Every single character in this movie is an asshole except for John Candy. And I'm going to touch on him a little bit later.
0: Buzz and, uh, the sister, uh, Angela Gertels, I think is the actress's name. At any rate, they're talking about, uh, the fact that Kevin is, uh, uh home alone chad and she says aren't you worried to buzz and he says no for three reasons a i'm not that lucky two and it's that joke it's like a two and d or his his one two and three but he's like no nah, he's gonna be fine you know uh, i'm not worried about it and then we show kevin like cut to kevin ordering pizza uh and the same delivery driver knocks the i think his racist lawn jockey
1: it is racist,
0: yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty sure that gag comes back around, and then it's Kevin using the movie the angels with filthy faces to interact with the driver through the door through the dialogue of the film so that it's like you know leave it on the floor or leave it on the uh, doorstep he's like okay right here how about the money he's like how much i owe you that kind of stuff and it all works and then kevin can't leave well enough alone and decides to be a jerk to this kid and scares him with the machine gun part of the scene
1: you know kevin could have just left 20 bucks in an envelope and a note that said leave the pizza on the steps Uh uh-huh I delivered pizza as noted earlier. I saw all kinds of weird stuff. People would order pizza and then proceed to go fuck and you'd knock on the door and then they'd show up in a towel covered in sweat, you know, somebody in the back, you know, yelling out like, Donnie, come back in here. I didn't come yet. And like, oh my God. Like, you know what I mean? The guy's like like just handing you money and you're wishing you had a plastic glove to take it from his sex covered hands. That, that is not an uncommon occurrence. I would have loved to pulled up to a house and just had 20 bucks on the door and instructions like, just leave it here. Great. I don't have to talk to anybody. Fantastic.
0: All right. How many times that I don't know, let's say 30. Was there a, a sex related incident during a delivery?
1: I don't know if I'd say 30. I would say probably one out of mm, one out of f- 50 okay and when i delivered pizza i had i had one time a guy pulled a gun on me not because he was robbing me because i went to a home out it was in a kind of a rural area and a guy pulled a gun on me because he was he didn't know who was showing up at his place late at night and when i told him i was like hey man i'm delivering a pizza he's like oh yeah yeah, you want to go around to the you know the bug tussle residence down this road and around the corner but um no there was all kinds of weird shit that would happen people would offer you alcohol or weed or you know whatever else it was yeah it was it was weird times.
0: I like it, like your delivery driver. Hey, you want a beer, man? That that happens a lot. Cuz they're
1: cuz they're drunk and high and partying. Like, "Yeah, it's a pizza yeah, guy." Yeah. You want to get fucked yeah. up with us? Of course I do. I'm the pizza guy. <laughs> right. The scene with the angels with nasty faces or whatever this movie is, it it does a good job because it sort of sets up a second usage of this with Marv later on. And again, this movie does this repeatedly where they interject either a prop or an idea or a device that gets repurposed later on in the movie. So Catherine O'Hara is still at the Paris airport but she's dealing with this old woman that has definitely got a history of grifting and pulling off con jobs. Catherine O'Hara is giving this old lady grifter two first class tickets and 500 bucks, a pocket translator, whatever that is, a pair of earrings and pretty much the shirt off her back in exchange for this old lady's seat on the plane. And then the old lady also wants Catherine O'Hara to throw in her watch which you know John Hughes also used watches as a barter item in Planes and automobiles. So, maybe beyond your point of his dislike of bureaucracy, he also feels that there should be more of a watch based currency that we should slowly transition to.
0: Right, or somebody took a watch off of him at some point and a bad deal in his early years and he's just had an axe to grind ever since about losing watches. I do like the line, is that a Rolex? I don't know. Do you think it is? I think that's pretty funny. But yeah, it is weird that Hughes uh, seems to be fixated on uh, on watches in the barter system. (laughs) It's not the worst thing in the world to trade because there's at least you Utility. So I'm just thinking of the Mad Max scenario of like, well, if that's all we had, maybe watches would be a value.
1: <laughs> this old lady grifter's old man grifter husband shows up and he all but puts a stop to this bullshit nonsense. And then Catherine O'Hara begs and says, I'm desperate from one mother to another. And then the old man grifter says, oh, all right. Bullshit. Just whatever. Take our seats. We don't give a shit.
0: You know, the not Wilford Brimley actor in this <laughs> film who is also a father and she's having a baby, right? And uh, the grandfather in Sixteen Candles. Mm-hmm. We do see Kevin at home lying in his, you know, parents' big ass bed, which looks pretty nice. It's a pretty comfortable looking bed. Weirdly, he is keeping a picture of his family under the pillow next to him that he conveniently pulls out to look longingly at.
1: Even more weirdly, is he's watching the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson.
0: Yeah, oh, man, those were the days, huh, Chad? <laughs>
1: He pulls out this picture of his family so that he can remember, you know, the people that he Thanos snapped into non-existence two days ago, and we can see that he misses them. Does he really think that these people have ceased to exist in the universe? What do you think is going through Kevin's head when he looks at this photo? Like, I wished all of you to no longer
0: be? Yeah, let me sit with this for a while, and if I feel like maybe there are some other people that shouldn't be anymore. <laughs> right. Then I'll do that too. But let's take it one at a time. I got rid of the family first of all. And I think he's learning like, oh yeah, I need to pick my battles a little better. I don't need to wholesale get rid of my family. Maybe if I had just gotten rid of Buzz, that would have changed the dynamic enough.
1: Maybe you should get rid of the wet bandits. Wish them away.
0: It's surprising that that doesn't happen in this movie, but I guess (laughs) the the idea is that he's learned a lesson and no longer wants to kill with his mind.
1: After this, we get a repeat of Kevin going through his grooming routine with deodorant and he smacks his face with aftershave and he screams again because if you thought it was funny the first time you're gonna love the sequel (laughs) right Kevin then goes to the grocery store and he buys some food and some milk and we get him acting like an adult in the checkout line with the store clerk it's kind of a retread of his interrogation scene with John Candy and Uncle Buck there's kind of this rapid fire Joe Friday type of a conversation and it's okay it's funny I mean it it is what it is
0: I do like in scenes like this where like he's acting like a little grown up like one one of the orphan kids. I like these moments and I think this is kind of what the movie does best. I also think that when it lands on the, I'm eight years old, do you think I'd be here on my own? That is kind of where the joke should end. It Instead, it keeps going a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, this is too much. And then there's a bit like on the way home where the bags break and bill out all, out all over the sidewalk. And at that point, I was, I was curious, like, how far away from home is he when this happens? Because if it's right outside the store, that's two trips. You're going back and forth two times.
1: <laughs> i'm just happy that he left the store without stealing anything and then being involved in a subsequent foot pursuit
0: and maybe it's just because he had to buy so much stuff he was like i get look toothbrush i can slip right down the pants but
1: it's <laughs> a gallon of milk where's that gonna go
0: i'm eight all Right. Right, I'm eight over here. What am I, am going to pretend to be pregnant?
1: <laughs> Kevin gets back home and he does laundry. No, he doesn't. Um While he's in the basement, he overcomes his fear of the scary furnace. So good for you, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Harry and Marv are outside casing the house yet again. Marv goes up to the house to see if anybody's there. And Kevin is hand-washing the dishes in the kitchen sink. No, he isn't. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Kevin realizes that someone's outside and he starts playing dialogue from angels with filthy, filthy, nasty, dirty faces. And then Marv is standing outside the door. He thinks that there are mobsters inside this suburban mansion up to no good. Kevin ends this scene by lighting off the firecrackers that he got from Buzz's room to make it sound like gunshots. Marv high steps it and runs for fear of his life. And he gets back to the van and tells Harry that someone named Snakes just blew somebody. Away. Hold on. He blew somebody away. My penmanship on my notes is a fright. I am so sorry. How embarrassing.
0: That's a very different movie, Bone Alone. It
1: is. When you say that snakes blew somebody, you're implying that snakes gave oral sex to a man. Oh, most certainly. That clearly did not happen in this movie. We're going to need
0: to edit that out. Not this one. Uh, (laughs) But... (laughs) <laughs> but I do like the fact that when uh, Marv gets back to the van and is like, we got to get out of here, Harry. Harry's like, what are you talking about? Stop and think about what, what's going on here. You know, we know that this kid's uh, supposed to be home by himself. He kind of chills him out. He's like, let's just sit and we're going to watch. And also because Harry's working the angle a little bit. He's like, also, if the police come to us and are like, hey, somebody did get shot in this house, we would be able to put a face Like, we'd be able to drop a dime on whoever that was, so we'd be out of any robbery trouble that maybe we came up on. (laughs) <laughs> so it's pretty good. It's pretty good, Harry. I like it. Cut back to Catherine O'Hara, who is now back in the States, but she can't get a connecting flight because it's Christmas Eve. And it's like, hey, we can't get you to Chicago. She's
1: in Scranton.
0: And John Candy shows up and makes everything better.
1: Yeah, this is a really important scene because if you look closely, you get to see the third non-white person in this movie. And there's only three of them. It's a black woman standing in line at the airport. So...
0: Ooh, I thought something looked strange.
1: It's odd. It's out of place. But make a note of it. Put a, a little dog ear on that page and you can come back to it later if you need to. In this scene, Catherine O'Hare is so desperate to get home after berating a ticket agent with threats that she says, I'm so desperate that I would sell my soul to the devil to get home to see my son. Enter John Candy, uh-huh. who I propose in this film is the devil. He is the friendliest, kindest, most wonderful character in the movie. And Catherine O'Hara, at this point in the film, is soon to be without a soul. How do I know this? Because in the finale of the film, she walks past two mirrors. And if you look closely, she has no reflection.
0: Oh, my God. I made that last part up.
1: But it sounded pretty good, didn't it?
0: It sounded great. I was on board.
1: I bought in. (laughs) John Candy plays Gus Polinski. Is there a more Polish name than Gus Polinski? Maybe pierogi bratwurst? Right. Yeah. I was going to say pierogi Polinski. Maybe the. (laughs) Gus tells Catherine O'Hara that uh, he has an offer uh, for her to sell her soul to the devil after hearing her berate her fellow travelers and Satan, I mean Gus, offers to let Catherine O'Hara travel with him and his Polka band in the back of a rental van. And this polka band is on their way to Milwaukee and they offer to drop her off in Chicago. And Catherine O'Hara reluctantly accepts the offer to travel with this merry band of polka
0: musicians.
1: And really what's going on here is that Gus, aka the Devil, is describing hell on earth.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I still love the way he says polka polka. polka
1: do you remember in planes trains and automobiles when john candy is driving with steve martin and they almost hit those two 18 wheelers and steve martin wakes up and he looks over at john candy and john candy is dressed up as
0: (laughs) the devil this you've got a real (laughs) dan brown style conspiracy on your hands here
1: you want to hear something even crazier if you rearrange the letters in john candy you can spell beelzebub
0: that doesn't seem right
1: yeah i made that part up too but it sounded good for a moment right
0: (laughs) yeah it sounded good but as someone who once came in second in a regional spelling bee chat that didn't that didn't stack up
2: (laughs)
1: <laughs> Back at the McAllister house, we see Kevin cutting off the top of some evergreen tree to make his own Christmas tree inside the home. Marv and Harry are watching, and they realize that Kevin is home. Uh, he's by himself. Uh-huh. Kevin's decorating this tree inside the home, and then Harry comes over and he peeks in through the window. And by means of a, of a reflection off of a Christmas tree ornament, Kevin sees Harry peeking in. And then Kevin calls out, Dad, can you come help me? That was that was my Kevin McAllister (laughs) impression, Uh, implying that his parents are there. And we already know that Kevin's pretty quick and he's not shy about lying. So all this adds up. Kevin overhears Harry and Marv outside plotting to come back later that night at 9 p.m. to rob his house. Kevin looks scared and says under his breath, Mom, where are you? Um, Mm -hmm. Which, to your point earlier, it, it sort of goes back that he clearly has a favorite parent and he has no meaningful relationship with his father.
0: I don't think he's ever met him.
1: Not really. I mean, he's the youngest of five. He's the baby. Eh,
0: 15 minutes on the weekends, if he's lucky.
1: At the time of his dad's death, I think Kevin will freely admit that he never
0: really knew his father. No. And he's going to resent him uh, a lot. (laughs) Um, He never reached out. Never once.
1: Catherine O'Hare is in the back of this rolling Oktoberfest, and she sits quietly alongside the devil and um, his merry band of goofballs as they're playing this Oompa band version of Deck the Halls in this Hertz rental van. It's now become nighttime. And we come back to Kevin and he goes to some rich neighborhood designated Santa meet and greet. And it is a beautiful standalone cottage just fully decked out with lights. It's quite nice, but it's late and there's nobody there. And some lady elf sends Kevin over to this guy dressed up as Santa as he's leaving. And he's a real douchebag. He's smoking and he's got a beat up piece of shit car the santa is played by ken hudson in his big screen debut and we last saw him as Hal in the ladies man season two episode five admiring leon phelps great big old candy cane wang Mm -hmm. which is a euphemism for his overly large penis yes that is very very big
0: (laughs) i like again being on brand we've had callbacks i think to almost every distinct season we've had the mommy we've had well done Well done. It's good synergy. Brand synergy. Kevin goes up
1: to this lowlife Santa and tells him, I don't want any toys for Christmas this year. I just want my family back. This sounds like a hostage negotiation or maybe a murder confession. If you are this Santa and a random child comes up to you late at night on Christmas Eve all by himself and says his only Christmas wish is to get his family back, you call the authorities immediately. And this guy just is like, yeah, yeah, well, whatever. Uh, here are a couple of Tic Tacs. This is willful negligence on the part of this Santa.
0: Yeah, he's sending this kid on his way as quick as he can. He wants no piece of this. Look, But look, the cops are going to be involved. It's just a question <laughs> of how much he is involved. With this police situation. So he's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should probably get home and not tell the police that you came to see Santa tonight. <laughs>
1: Kevin walks home all sad and he sees family celebrating the holidays in their big fancy houses. And this movie actually doesn't do a very good job of giving us a timeline and what day it is. We kind of sort of figure out it's Christmas Eve, but that's not until, at least for me, the very end of the movie. Kevin's walking along and he goes by this church. And knowing that it's Christmas Eve, it's pretty lean on attendance. Because, look, man, you go to a church on Christmas Eve, that is standing room only. That's Times Square on New Year's Eve. That's Burning Man. That's when all the uh-huh. slack asses show up to punch their time card to maintain their membership. That's not eight old people hanging out, listening to a children's choir, you know, warm up.
0: This is like the week after, the, you know, the scandal from Father Jones at Our Lady <laughs> of We Don't Talk About That Anymore, you know. These are the dedicated few. They're like like uh-huh. We don't
1: care like I was born here, I was raised here and I'll die here.
0: That new priest don't seem to like the boys nearly as much.
1: kevin wanders into this church and it's here that we get the signature john hughes emotional moment of characters connecting on a deeper level and honestly in my opinion it is what really anchors this movie because here old man marley comes over and sits down next to kevin and he says merry christmas and asks to sit down and he and kevin talk and the old man shares some things that went sideways with his adult son and that he's there to hear his granddaughter sing because he's not allowed to be around her which don't ask kevin confesses that he's kind of been a shit heel and the old man confesses that he's been an asshole to his kid and they share some advice back and forth and it's a really well acted scene the music in this carries the conversation on its shoulders and then the old man and kevin say their goodbyes and kevin runs home where we begin act three
0: but we run home chad to what m- makes me happy in any christmas movie the carol of the bells it's creepy bell music <laughs> and <laughs> as soon as i hear it i get all tickled i'm just i'm so thrilled because it's like oh yeah something dark's about to happen you know this doesn't precede a scene where somebody's lighting the christmas tree some shit's about to go down at christmas
1: as i noted earlier there's not a lot in the history of kevin's character that gives us the understanding of his drive to come up with this elaborate homemade booby trap security system slash torture house that he puts together and it is a really elaborate setup i mean he pulls out out a big Crayola crayon blueprint of what he's going to put where I don't know when he had time to pull all this together but you know I'm, maybe I'm, I'm
0: overthinking it he's got that kid cocaine energy you know <laughs>
1: Well, we know that Kevin's resourceful. We know that he can do laundry. He can go to the grocery store. He can five finger discount a toothbrush. The whole bit with the videotape dialogue, um, he's clever. We know that. Earlier in the movie, they say that he was playing with his dad's glue gun to make Christmas ornaments out of fishing hooks, which sounds like he's more into crafting than backyard industrial engineering. During this whole sequence where he's setting this step up, we see the tarantula yet again, uh, just to make sure that we don't forget about that big hairy bug.
0: Right. This is going to come up again, people.
1: <laughs> what if it never- Never did she's like why did they keep showing that tarantula that's so weird
0: or like the end of the movie was that kevin has a really intense allergic reaction to a tarantula bite <laughs> and the last five minutes of the movie is a medical drama
1: screaming like who's got the epi pen
0: who's uh-huh. got the
1: epi not like this i just got home there is no god kevin puts down a bunch of these micro machines on the ground he pours water on the steps to make them freeze he rigs up a rope from his house over to a treehouse outside small detail snow is on the ground everywhere in this movie but it's not on any of the houses or in any of the trees the house is fully trapped for boobies Uh, kevin sits down to eat his microwave macaroni and cheese he says a little prayer and then the clock strikes nine which is when uh, harry and marv said they would be back and they're pretty punctual crooks kevin gets (laughs) up without eating his macaroni and cheese which always bothers me when i watch this movie it's like he made this meal but he doesn't get to enjoy it so that's a shame kevin runs over and grabs his gun uh he gives a little pump action and then he's ready to protect his house guns jesus christmas this here's what america's all about (laughs) Bo.
0: i love it chad when i see a little child with a weapon uh i say to myself i'm watching a good movie and uh whether it's battle royale or home alone uh i enjoy them equally
1: unless the kid's wearing a turban then you're like
0: wait a minute I don't like this at all this seems a little untoward Chad but <laughs> so so we have our first cell though like as you said like this is the turn into three we are setting up all of our props taken from the uh, the good people at acme Mm -hmm. because this is about to turn into one big wily coyote cartoon and i for one am fine with that because it starts with them knocking on the back door and the first thing that happens is kevin shoots harry aka joe pesci Right in the dick, and you (laughs) want to make me laugh in a movie? You shoot somebody in the dick with a BB (laughs) gun, and I am there. Opening night, sir.
1: He shoots him in the dick by way of a dog door, but they don't have a dog. They don't even have a cat, which bothers me because they live in a very cold climate. That is not energy efficient.
0: Like if you bought a house that had a dog door in it, but you didn't have a pet, would that inspire you to get a, a new door or a dog?
1: It would inspire me to get a new door because you have a dog door like that people can crawl through unless you have a dog and then the dog scares them away it's just basic math
0: right but i would go for the dog i would get the dog instead of the door well you have a
1: bigger heart than me
0: that's what the doctors say
1: (laughs) marv sticks his head in the dog door and then kevin shoots him in the forehead and then harry and marv they decide to split up harry goes to the front door where he slips on some icy steps marv goes down some steps to the basement back door where he slips on some icy steps and the physical comedy in this is really playful and fun but i gotta say john williams score makes this whole third act sing and dance with such a beautiful
0: mischievous nature right there is a i would call it a Danny Elfman level of subtlety to the score uh in that there is none but it is that kind of pop up up I mean it, it's a very bouncy score yeah. through all of this because it's a cartoon score and you know, I like it like John Williams knows what this is he's essentially scoring a Warner Brothers cartoon yes it, that's how it plays and it's wonderful
1: Marv comes into the basement and he pulls a string that is attached to a clothing iron that is resting high above in the laundry chute the iron falls down hits him in the face leaving impression of an iron across his forehead and down his nose and cheeks he gets really clobbered we cut over to harry who's coming in in the front door and he grabs a monogram doorknob that has been heating up on the opposite side with some sort of electrical heating iron so when harry grabs it his hand gets a third degree burn on the palm of his hand and i've not seen a palm scald this severe since Arnold Ernst taunts grab that scalding hot staff of raw medallion and Marion Ravenhood's burning bar and Henry Jones's first adventure.
0: Cha-cha. I love that so much. I can't even tell you. And the
1: liberals are assholes, babe.
0: Yeah. It begs the question. I like not, not enough to, to, uh, actually look it up or, you know, try to find <laughs> out. But, uh, I do think to myself every now and again, what happened to Dennis Miller? Like what happened in his life? <laughs> where did it all go go so differently for him um, I
1: don't know.
0: i'm not saying not saying wrong just saying different um <laughs> but yeah so after the uh tote level uh scalding the, so we've got uh I'll, i I got to say this man there was a Fall from one of the stuntmen, uh, one of the ice gags where Joe Pesci falls off the uh, the steps and goes like kind of ass over tea kettle mm-hmm. so that his feet come out from under him and his back lands on the steps and then he flips over.
1: That'll leave a mark.
0: I was like, holy shit, man. I don't care what stuntman you are. That looks painful. I, I was blown away by some of the stunt work in in this section that's old-fashioned stunt work where it's just like i guess i'm just gonna flip over them steps that's probably gonna hurt but that's what i'm paid to do and it looks real and it looks painful and that's what sells all this stuff my favorite bit in all of this i think is the iron gag like the light chain to iron on the face because it, it like there's that half second of it falling down the shaft where he's like huh? That (laughs) just cracks me up. And also apparently I just like face trauma. That gag really makes me laugh. And I'm not a big slapstick fan at the end of the day. Like I'm not a big Three Stooges fan, but I think a lot of these gags really work because they're kind of visceral in a way that you need these to be with the, you know, the stuntman landing on his back on the steps where you're like, shit man that looks like it would hurt and I think that's how the, you have to sell it
1: I think also that Stern and Pesci really do a good job of anticipating and then reacting to the shenanigans that ensue yeah just kind of from the shrieking and the screaming and the yelling it's really really well done which which is why it made you know hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and continues Four, to do so today 460
0: <laughs> but yeah like even like Pesci being kind of smaller and a little rounder and and daniel stern being tall and thin there's such a, a cartoon element to even that yeah, uh, or a Laurel and Hardy uh, element to that as well. Care and attention was paid to this movie, and and it shows. We get the the iron thing. There's also the gag with uh, the tar on the steps, where Daniel Stern is walking up the steps, but uh, the, the black tar on them. It's a pretty good gag because the camera moves up the up the stairs, and you see like one shoe, then the other shoe, then one sock, and then he's coming out of the other sock as he's barefooted walking up the steps. They're like I said, they're all wily e. coyote gags. And, it, and it's kind of great Pesci even curses like Yosemite Sam like yeah. when he's plunging his hand into the snow after grabbing the door handle and it's just like bracket, bracket it's all unintelligible cursing which I think is far superior than uh, you want to see some brand energy here the Christmas vacation episode where we talked about the string of pseudo profanity that Clark Griswold had that felt just like you just want to say fuck in this movie yeah and and you don't want to commit to it but that's that's all you're doing here is being evocative of worse language whereas this is just like oh no 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 it's like them saying cuss in fantastic mr fox yeah you know it's that kind of sort of charming way to handle that i think
1: harry goes to the back door of the house and when he opens it there's a blowtorch that's rigged up on the wall with a string that when he opens it it burns the top of harry's head I don't remember that the blowtorch is ever set up in the movie. That's one of the one elements that I was like, I don't remember anybody mentioning a blowtorch, but it's okay. And it works. I guess it smells terrible (laughs) when he burns his head off, but skin and
0: hair and. Or the nylon or whatever that the knit cap was as well. It smells a little like plastic. Yeah. It's going to be bad. Right. And it's going to be tough to remove because some of that's going to have melted to his scalp and his hair. Yeah, it's going to be there forever.
1: Harry just kicks down the door and he enters the room and he, he goes in and he walks through some plastic wrap that's covered in hot glue and then a fan blows on him and covers him with feathers. Marv, uh, who was in the basement and then stepped on the nail, he ends up leaving the basement, coming in through a side window and he's now barefoot. As you pointed out, his socks and his shoes were taken off by the tarred steps. As he comes in through this side window, he steps on these Christmas tree ornaments and I haven't seen this type of filet feet by Broken Glass since Johnny McLean made his way through the upper floors of the Nakatomi Plaza looking for Hans Gruber by Global Warming is a hoax. Chachi. (laughs) Shoved into glass.
0: (laughs) I I don't know what he actually said in that movie, but now I want to watch Die Hard. I couldn't
1: decide which uh, Dennis Miller reference to shoehorn in. So you know what? I brought them both. You can pick which one you like. Or neither. I don't care. (laughs)
0: There's never enough. (laughs) <laughs>
1: Harry and Marv meet up on the first floor of the house They slip on some micro machines Then Kevin throws paint cans Attached to ropes down from the second Floor banister which hit the wet bandits In the face one by one
0: If I could mention uh, one film here That directly references this Moment with the paint cans A couple of years ago, uh, last year as a matter of fact A little horror movie called Better Watch Out Landed on Netflix I think Is where it premiered even Or maybe Shutter, one of those Point being that the movie explores the idea of what the trauma of a paint can being swung via a rope down a flight of steps at somebody's head would actually engender in the human body a more realistic look at that they would be dead yeah if that it turns out that's exactly what happens chad spoilers in the movie <laughs>
1: shit i don't need to see this movie you're talking about like i've held a paint can in my hand
0: i'm not saying you have to but there's part of you that might want to (laughs) and that's what i bring to the listers chad if you want to see what this would really look like the film better watch out is is gonna show you
1: (laughs) it's at this point that harry loses his gold tooth that we've seen twinkling throughout the movie that'll come back later because the movie's smart um Kevin then goes upstairs and he calls the police. He tells them to come get these two bandits and he sends them over to their neighbor's address, which Kevin is thinking 10 moves ahead on a lot of this. So he's smarter than, I guess maybe I gave him credit for at initial viewing
0: King Kong ain't got nothing (laughs) on him. I'm playing chess motherfuckers.
1: Harry and Marv come upstairs and uh, they trip over a wire and Marv grabs Kevin's leg before he can escape back up to the punishment attic. And it's here that finally the tarantula shows up for the 18th time in this movie. And Kevin picks up the spider and places it on Marv's face, who rightfully so shrieks like a woman.
0: This is why you get Daniel Sturd
1: His reaction is so funny. The comedic terror that he presents in this scream is one of the best moments in this whole movie.
0: Yeah. It is the biggest laugh of the movie for me. I have a couple of laughs throughout this movie, but that's the one where I kind of lose my shit because I genuinely do have kind of a thing about spiders and his reaction is perfect. (laughs) It It is like the Wilhelm scream. It is so good.
1: He then tosses the spider onto the belly of this semi-conscious Harry. And then Marv proceeds to beat Harry about the stomach with his crowbar in an attempt to kill the spider. And that's funny too. Kevin escapes via a makeshift zipline fashioned with a bicycle handlebar to scoot across this rope over to his... Treehouse. A stunt woman dressed like Kevin grabs the handlebars and she glides safely over to the, <laughs> the tree house in this scene. Harry and Marv show up looking for Kevin. Marv actually suggests that since they can't find Kevin at the top of the attic that maybe he committed
0: suicide. <laughs> Another thing I find very funny. Maybe he killed himself. This is an 8 year old kid. He committed suicide? It's the holidays. It's hard on people. I know. His family's gone. He look He's had two criminals chasing him all night it's a stressful situation it's not the craziest thing that ever. it's like uh making that move where you shoot yourself before the zombies get you right you know it's like nah, i'd rather go out on my own terms
1: <laughs> kevin screams out from the treehouse i'm over here and then he calls harry and marv horses asses <laughs> which, which that's funny Kids swearing is always funny don't believe me go see the bad news bears math out not thornton
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh uh the, the Thornton isn't awful. Uh, we'll talk about this another time.
1: It's no math though.
0: No, 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 no. Not saying it is kevin is in his rich person clubhouse and harry and marv decide well we're gonna follow go hand over hand across the yard and it's like what are you doing here's what you do i'll sit here and watch them you go downstairs and go out the door like a human being then we'll corner him in this tree house like if he tries to come across the rope i'm here if he tries to get down you're there but instead uh because they're cartoons they're climbing the rope uh, across the lawn to the clubhouse and macaulay's Vulcan has uh, a pair of shears and cuts the rope and they swing into the brick uh, face of the house with an oomph and uh, and hilarity has ensued.
1: Mm-hmm. Kevin looks at the camera and goes ain't I a stinker
0: right the fact that he does not dress like a woman at some point in the hijinks is really amazing puts on a wig and Daniel shirts like oh who's this <laughs>
1: then we're dealing with a uh, judy the elf situation only worse but we don't want to we don't want to deal with that um
0: right that's why the church was so empty we can't
1: <laughs> kevin then runs over to the neighbor's house that's the one that harry and marv have already burgled harry and marv give chase but they don't fall for kevin's latest trick and they outsmart kevin by entering the house of the front door as opposed to the basement door kevin goes through the basement which is now flooded because of marv's assholery kevin climbs to the top of the stairs and he comes face to face with harry and marv and harry and marv grab kevin and then they pick him up and they hang him by the back of his shirt on like a door hanger and then harry says that he's gonna bite off kevin's fingers one by one which uh uh-huh. dude that is hardcore
0: but it's a very fairy tale kind of thing to me yeah of like it's it's the witch throwing kids in the oven or whatever it's like i'm gonna bite your fingers off it's not i'm gonna kill you or i'm gonna stab you or shoot you or whatever it's a more larger than life kind of thing but it's also horrifying to children i would think you know i'm not gonna kill you i'm just gonna make sure that you're never able to pick up anything with this hand (laughs) ever again
1: and it's at this point that boo radley i mean old man marley shows up with a snow shovel and hits harry and marv each on the head, thus saving Kevin and preventing the loss of all of his fingers. Cops show up. Harry and Marv go to jail. Kevin is safe. I want to know what that police report looks like. When they walk into the house and these two idiots are just sort of, they're they're laid out unconscious. Like what, how did, how did this happen?
0: Man. And also Kevin and the old man now have this kind of crazy Gran Torino relationship (laughs) where he's like, I got you out of the trouble with the cops. You helped me deal with a situation with my kid. Like we have a very deep, complicated relationship now. Yes. Uh, And also I got you out of that thing with the cops. Don't fucking forget that. Uh, but there's kind of a nice moment where Kevin leaves out, like, milk and cookies for Santa and and, and does the whole thing. And it, it really is nice, but also because he's a little rich boy. Look at those pajamas. And, and the next scene, like, when he wakes up in the morning and comes down in, like, a Hugh Hefner smoking jacket.
1: Slippers and a robe and an ascot and a sailing cap and...
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. when he wakes up the next morning, which is, you know, as some call it Christmas morning, there's like three feet of snow everywhere. And Catherine O'Hara, presumably having outplayed John Candy in a fiddling competition and thus winning back her soul, she exits the back of the Hertz rental van and makes her way into her
0: house. Before we say goodbye to John Candy, mm-hmm. can I, can I tell you the thing that made me laugh the hardest from him in this movie? Sure. When, when they're talking about being bad parents yeah. and she says like, Hey, did you ever like leave your kid home uh, alone at christmas and he's like well no i never did that but uh um you know we did leave one of the kids uh in a funeral home and that the line that kills me is and she's like well was he okay it's like yeah yeah you know start talking again after six I don't know 6 7 weeks the delivery of i don't know 6 7 weeks that is pure genius it is a beautiful thing and just seeing katherine o'hara and and john candy performing together is always nice but in this moment where he's like oh yeah like here's this horribly traumatized kid that I'm going to play off uh i it, it's just beautiful
1: i i didn't mention this in the introduction and I, I don't know if you know this or not but john candy for this film only shot for one day and all of the scenes with Catherine o'hara specifically the scene you're citing they improv that whole thing
0: Uh, of course
1: and and in watching it and knowing that it makes it even funnier to me to just sort of see this mother who is you know so worried about her child and him just telling this devastatingly awful story you know like i'm I'm trying (laughs) i'm (laughs)
0: I'm
1: trying to connect with you but 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 i'm just failing
0: miserably and even her like i think we should stop talking now <laughs> it's just it's great. It's so funny. Uh that whole scene is wonderful. So but yeah, so they they drop her off at home, uh Catherine O'Hara busts into the house and is is calling for Kevin. And I like his move here
1: well she says merry christmas sweetheart and then kevin gives his mom a double barrel stink eye and he is pissed off
0: at his mom this is what i I, the move i like where he decides i'm going to consciously withhold my love and torture her for just a second until i can get an apology out of her Mm -hmm. and then we're cool
1: he's gonna lord this abandonment over her for the rest of her life
0: oh on her deathbed he's gonna be like holding her by the hand saying hey you remember that christmas (laughs) you're this is why you're not gonna go to heaven is why i bring it up now poof
1: john candy shows up in the corner and (laughs) he's like we're waiting for you
0: (laughs) yeah like with with the bassoon (laughs) the oompa band and everyone is Uh like no it's a hell of a polka 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 (laughs) A big, yeah, you know, we sold 423 copies of that one in Chicago. No, Sheboygan.
1: Approximately.
0: That's what he says. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that scene a couple of times because of the whole them again. It's just them playing off each other. Though the, the whole you know, fortune tree 23 of those we sold in Chicago. No, Sheboygan. Uh, it just oh, uh, it's. It, Like, there are exquisite moments in comedy, and there are a couple in this movie, and um, oh my goodness, it's good. But yeah, so, he withholds her love until she apologizes, and then he says, where is everyone? And Catherine O'Hara says, look, they couldn't come, you know, they wanted to be here, but they couldn't make it. And then everybody busts in, and it's chaos in the house once more, because we're mirroring the scene at the end, showing that the character has grown, and it's not frustrated by all this chaos and the fact that he's not the center of attention he has learned that being part of the family is what's important and even though he may not always be the focus he wants them all there he loves them he cares about them and 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 like the old man says you know uh, how how you feel about your family is complicated and and he has he has learned a, a lesson a, taken a, a step towards adulthood and and how he perceives his family and it, it's well done chad is what it is
1: Buzz comes in and says, "Hey, Kev, it's pretty cool you didn't burn this place down." And is this to show that this character, who in every single scene of this movie is a walking, talking redheaded prick, and for some reason he's suddenly nice to Kevin? That that doesn't make sense to me. And even immediately after this scene, he's an asshole again. So I I don't know what to make of that.
0: Right. I I think it's just like okay, well, there is some healing, I suppose. But I mean, it kind of who cares? Buzz is an incidental character at best. Fuck him. I like the fact that everyone's blown away. Like, you went shopping? Holy. Did you hear what he said? You know, honey, come here. Listen to this. He went shopping. Like everyone is just completely blown away by this tidbit.
1: I like when Catherine O'Hara asks her husband and kids, how did you guys get home? And the dad's like, well, we flew, you know, Christmas magic. Like some old lady at the airport sold us tickets for $10,000 along with a pocket translator and a watch and some earrings that look a lot like the ones you have.
0: It's even more passive aggressive than that he's like hey you know that flight that we were gonna take in the morning and you decided not to because you were gonna hang out and do all this bullshit that's the one we took the one that got us home literally five minutes after you <laughs> so i don't know maybe for once you just do what i say how about you try that mary i can't remember her name in the movie it's called catherine o'hara yeah catherine i'm sorry i can't be mad at you
1: the family then just wanders away so that kevin can go over to the window and see old man marley reuniting with his son's family including his red-headed nameless granddaughter and it's a touching moment that would make any costanza cry we then hear buzz from the second floor scream out kevin what did you do to my room because remember he destroyed the bookshelves in buzz's room and then the movie fades to black and then we hear a rousing rendition of we wish you a merry christmas but i would like to take a step or two back did kevin clean up this whole house before his family arrived because in this scene when his family comes in this place is spotless there are no micro machines there's no paint cans covered in brains and blood you would think that there would be some remnants of the mayhem that took place the night before like did he take down the blowtorch in the kitchen? Are those tarred steps in the basement still there? Because you know what? You're going to have to replace that entire staircase. You can't just leave that there. That's irreparably <laughs> right. damaged.
0: Right. The movie ends just before like Buzz steps on the nail. Catherine O'Hara gets her face burned by the torch. It's
1: Kevin. We did this with Jingle all the way, but let's just take this a scene or two later. How did Kevin explain to his parents why this house is such a disaster Zone upon their return what was he telling them like kevin why is there a blowtorch in the kitchen why are there nails on these tarred stairs whose adult shoes are these stuck to the stair kevin what happened here
0: and at that point he flips open the zippo <laughs> lights a cigarette and he's like look lots gone down since you guys went away i've changed i've gone through things i've seen things you wouldn't believe
1: you remember how i used to be afraid of the furnace I'm not
0: afraid of that furnace anymore. I've pissed in that furnace twice.
1: I shot a man in the dick, and I shot a man in the head while you
0: were gone. (sighs) I committed my first crime while you were gone. I stole a toothbrush. I outran a cop. (laughs) It just becomes the 400 blows at this point. My père, my mère, just stole le bicyclette.
1: Yeah, and that's Home Alone the highest grossing comedy of all time a a truly delightful wonderful family comedy film more than any other movie that we have reviewed this season this is a movie that you can put on that grandparents parents and children of all ages can watch no one's sticking their face into a woman's tits no one is sniffing panties at a department store there's no overly felonious behavior granted kevin does steal a toothbrush but the value of that is under a hundred so it's only going to be a misdemeanor. Don't worry about that. But for the most part, it doesn't introduce any ideas that spoil the magic and mythology of Christmas. I'm looking at you, the Santa Claus. It is truly a family-friendly, fun holiday film that deserves every single penny that it made and and much, much more.
0: Yeah, I, I agree completely. I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I thought it was a, a delight. I found it very funny. I thought it was uh, very touching. Even though like the Santa Claus has Santa Claus right in the title, as well as uh, titular character is is the main character, this felt the most Christmassy and, and the most heartwarming, I suppose. So yeah, I I thought uh, Home Alone was was fantastic. I was I was pleasantly surprised by my reaction to it because I hadn't seen it in in many many years. And
1: would you say that um, watching this movie made your heart grow three sizes that day?
0: No, that was probably the uh sausage cheese balls um <laughs> chad we're gonna end the season here with a movie that is most certainly not wonderful it <laughs> might it might be the worst movie we're gonna talk about and i don't know if it's gonna be the the least enjoyable but it, it's certainly going to be <laughs> the least movie <laughs>
1: And what movie is that, Bo?
0: That is Santa Claus, the motion picture, the movie. One of those. I get it confused with Star Trek in that way. Um, but it is the uh, it stars Dudley Moore as an elf and John Lithgow as a an actor who never saw a scene he couldn't chew. He does a, an outstanding job.
1: I have yet to see this movie ever in my life, and I have purposely put it off as a final present to unwrap for this season because the trailer, the people behind it, the writers, the director, everything that I've read about this movie, it just looks to be a disaster. So please come back next week as we wrap up this season of The
0: War on Christmas Movies. I'm very excited to wrap up uh, the <laughs> wrap up uh, the Christmas episodes. But yeah, I I've I've su- been surprisingly engaged by watching uh, Christmas movies this year, and I may in fact watch uh, a, one of those Hallmark movies just just to do it, <laughs> just for a goof. You know, like one of them stories about like, hey, here's a, a librarian from the big city come home to her little town for Christmas. And oh my goodness, is that a sexy pet shop owner that lives next door and is being foreclosed upon? Um, I think all of that sounds wonderful. You know what?
1: I think we've melted your cold, cold heart. So <laughs> um, a Christmas miracle has occurred. So as always, like, rate, review, send us a note, drop us a line. You can find us pick and moviescom uh, and let us know your thoughts. We will come back next week with our final episode of this season and uh, wrap things up in grand holiday fashion. So we'll, we'll see you next week.
0: Bye.